0: You've seen horrors. Horrors that you've seen. But you have no right to call me a murderer. You have a right to kill me. You have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me. It's impossible through words describe what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means horror horror has a face and you must make a friend of horror horror and moral terror are your friends if they are not then they are enemies to be feared they are truly enemies
1: my name is dustin kelly but everybody calls me dj i'm prior army serving as both a ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast podcast. This quote from Apocalypse Now rings true and deep with this week's guests. In the studio, Jeff Morris, a former infantry officer in the United States Army, serving two deployments to Baghdad, Iraq, as a platoon leader and company commander. And through him, Legion 8 lives on. He's been featured in numerous magazine articles, television profiles, and speaks to a wide array of audience. He now lives with his wife and four children. Welcome
2: to the studio, Jeff. What's going on, brother? Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to start out with that. That seems like a big point of your book. It's where we're going to lead to, and I, after I read that in the book, I went and looked it up, watched it again. Of course, I've seen Apocalypse Now, but I wanted to hear it from him, and it gives a whole new meaning of how you put it in the book. So let's get right into it. Let's talk about your childhood Uh, before you came to the military, um, talk about kind of your parents and things like that and what you kind of wanted to do as you were coming up.
2: Yeah, man. I, uh, so I was born in Alabama and moved to Florida, uh, Destin, Florida when I was got three, four, maybe don't really remember, uh, you know, early childhood, maybe not the, the best of memories. My parents split when I was really young and then for whatever reason got remarried right away. And so then we got down to Florida, and they split again. And yeah, those were, you know, not not good times. Uh, you know, but my, my mom was amazing. And, you know, took me and my older brother, Mike, and just, uh, you know, as a kid, you don't realize, you know, that maybe things are different, you know, it's, it is what it is, uh, you don't realize that, you know, mom working a job during the day, and then going to, you know, bartend or cocktail waitress at night, and then you know we go to sleep the the apartment complex we lived in you know shit that you know parents would get child protective services called on them nowadays you know it's just right. a different world but you know like we would you know she'd get us to bed and go bartend and uh you know the apartment complex security guard would come by the, uh, the apartment and check on us and then she would come back in at two in the morning you know god this is you know i'm Gosh, you know, six years old when this started, maybe eight year old, then she had to pick up another job, like delivering newspapers. And she would come in and wake me and my brother up, you know, two times a week and go deliver the Destin log. You know, we'd drive around, you know, two, three hours at night and me and my brother would sit in the back and roll newspapers and she would throw them out the door. Uh, You know, but, you know, I look back on it and, you know, now in hindsight, you know, I realized it was pretty tough, you know, but at the time, you know, and I, I had fun, great friends, you know, played a lot of sports. Uh, you know, I lived in an amazing place. You know, you don't realize how nice Dustin, Florida is until you get older and realize, hell, there's a reason why people come in vacation here all the time. Uh, yeah, man. So just, you know, school and sports were my deal. I, I think early on, I saw how hard my mom was working and the financial struggles that we were going through. And, uh, know, yeah, I just didn't want her to have, uh, the divorce hit my older brother a lot harder. Just because he was older and kind of got what was going on, you know, but for me, I kind of took it as a way of, you know, mom's got enough on her plate, so I want to give her one less thing to worry about. So, you know, I really just tried to, you know, school came pretty easy and tried to focus on that. And yeah, man, just like I said, give her one less thing to worry about. She had enough on her plate.
1: You know, and were you thinking towards the future at all right then? Or were you kind of just in the moment? Because, you know, I ask that every week to people. Hey, what were you thinking about? And I hear some guys go, man, from seven years old on, I knew I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And and I've even talked to like Jack Carr, where Jack Carr said, I knew I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And then I knew I wanted to retire from being a Navy SEAL and be a best-selling author. And he did both. And it's amazing to hear people, because I know when I was seven, there was a couple different things I wanted to do. And you think about stuff, but I ask this question every week. And I hear people say, you know, from the answer of, yeah, I knew exactly what I wanted to do to, man, I was just trying to kind of get by. And it seems that the people that are just trying to get by— seem to get their focus later on in life and they really kind of zero in that focus almost to like a crazy extent. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And I would say I fall into that category of the focus came later in life, but what I think did come early in life was, uh, I saw that I didn't want to struggle like we were struggling. And, uh, and again, like my mom is, I mean, you've read enough about her, my mom, I, I we could sit here and talk for two hours about how awesome that woman is. And just the example and the work ethic that she taught me. Uh, but I just looked around, I just remember thinking like, I, I don't, I didn't want life to be that hard when I got older and. Now, what the hell did that mean? What was I going to do? I mean, they were all kind of, you know, I was going to be a pro baseball player. Then I want to be a pro football player. Then I wanted to be a lawyer. Then I wanted to be a FBI special agent. Then I wanted to be in the military. So all these different things kind of went through my head, you know, but the common denominator and all that was uh, I, I wanted more than, than what I had.
1: And so when we talk about that and, and you talk about all those things and you talk about how awesome your mom was. Um, I, I want to talk about your dad for a minute and he wasn't around a lot um, from the book and stuff. I want to yeah. know one good thing you took and something that you thought I'll never ever do that because I want to kind of bring that up later on when we start talking about being a parent and, and things that you were doing, but yeah. one good thing that you took from him and then one that you were like, I'll never do that. I'm going to be the kind of parent that does this.
2: Yeah. So I think if there was one good thing, that I took from him. uh, He was successful. And I think there was this idea. And again, you kind of pick up on things of, you know, all right, I'm at home all the time, things are one way. But when I go with dad, we get to go do fun stuff and get new bikes and get cool stuff and get to go do, you know, nice things. So I think I kind of saw that as like, all right, I want to be like that without being like that, if that makes sense.
1: Got it. Nope.
2: Uh, Yeah. And again, you know, look, I mean, it's, uh, we we get along well now i mean you you picked up on it uh you know i I called him you know i didn't say anything about it for a while and i called him about a month before the we went years without speaking and you know then over the last 10 years or so you know kind of maybe i guess a little bit longer kind of came back into each other's life but i called him before and said hey you know i want to let you know that uh i have this book coming out and there's going to be nothing bad said about you in it but there's going to be nothing good said about you in it either and i think people and i said i know how you are you're going to tell all your friends about it and i'm just like prepping you up front this is how it's going to be and you know and and look man i'll I'll give the guy credit uh he'll be the first one to tell you that you know hey I, i didn't i didn't do what i should have done back then and we had this talk gosh probably i guess it was around 10 years ago and he just said i can't change it all i can do is try to you know, just through my actions be better. And, you know, I've never subscribed to the idea and people can have their own opinions and that's fine. But, you know, never subscribed to the idea that, you know, just because someone, you know, is your dad, you know, they got your mom pregnant, that doesn't make them a father. And, you know, my stepdad was always much more of the, the father figure in my life, you know, but I give my dad credit now that he acknowledges that and, uh, doesn't ask for forgiveness, just ask for a chance to, uh, come back into our life. So yeah, he, he has, he's come, he's visited my kids and again, we get along, we get along well now. Uh, but to your point of like, what did I, so I told you what, you know, I got from him. What did I not, and, you know, and I, and I won't go into all the details, not because I don't want to share it. I told you earlier, I was an open book because right, yeah, it involves things involving, my mom, but I remember, you know, at a a pretty young age that, you know, no teenage kid wants to look at their dad, you know, as a middle teenage kid and, and say, you know, I I heard what you said and, you know, I know what you did. And, uh, you did that to the most important person in my life. And he said, you know, you should be, I, you know, I should be one of those, that person too. And I told him that, you know, all you've done is set the example that when I'm a dad one day of what not to do.
1: uh, can i ask you a question if it's not getting too personal because it's something that comes up in my mind when you say that do you ever think of the situation and we don't have to get real deep into it why i'm asking the question or why your answer is the way it is but do you ever think that when you're an adult and you look back and you're a parent now and you've you've got these kids do you ever look at those things when people say look i know i messed up and i just want to change it it's easy now it's easy to say that now there's yeah, no more yeah. struggle anymore. So it's very now, I, easy to go, look, I want to be close and I want to, well, of uh, uh, course you do. Cause it's easy now. Yeah. It, it's very yeah. easy to just pick up a phone yeah. and say hi or do whatever. And I think that you hear a lot of these guys that didn't, didn't have dads around and things like that. That's what they get when they're older. I'm so proud of you. You've done this and you've done this. Yeah without you being there
2: so you know oh no man there was there, there was a stretch you know so you know i i you know again we talked some when i was deployed i had this big email my first deployment right this email thread he asked to be on it i'd keep people updated on stuff and you know when i got the award and uh you know that deployment i and i reached out to him separately and i was like look i know what you're gonna do you know you're gonna I'm like oh you know look at my boy type deal and I'm like and I don't want you to do it and then I'll be damn you know he sends me a a newspaper article from the local newspaper it's like you know you know father of local war hero it may get somebody else's words I'm not saying that at all and I call him and I was like you know or I emailed him it's like what the fuck man you know it's uh so anyways fast forward a couple of years second deployment get home and you know so I have my brother and then you know, got two half brothers from one of his marriage and one half brother from one of his other marriages. And, you know, he would would call and check in and text me. And literally it was, you know, I'd see it was him. I'd pick up the phone and I'd be like, you know, have you called, you know, XYZ, my other brothers, have you called them? When's the last time you talked to them? Well, I haven't, I'd I'd hang up on them. And I'm like, you know, it's cool and convenient to have the son that you can tell your buddies about you know, that went off and did these things, but being a father is about being a father to all your kids, not because one of them went out and did something that in society's eyes is noble. So when you start being a father to them, then you and I can have a chance. And that went on for several years, man. Uh, you know, but he did, and it, it wasn't the, you know, you know to your point what you're talking about of, I wanna get back in your life. It was just more of, you know, let me try to earn the right to do it and now you know i I agree 100 percent with what you're saying uh part of it was like all right let's see how how long this goes you know but we're going on 10 years now so i got to give credit where credit's due and uh you know do we have a great relationship no do we have a bad one you know we don't talk much uh it's there but to me it's 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 a relationship exactly what it is yeah yeah exactly that's all it is and uh, I think both and I, he and I, uh, heck, my wife now is probably more, you know, again, coming from that very close-knit family. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't always see it the same way you do.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and you know, that can cause some tension because it's very hard to explain that to someone who wants to be different than that. You know, You know what I'm saying? That comes from that close relationship. It's yeah. very hard to explain that, look, just because someone is who they are doesn't make them who they are, right? You know, exactly. And,
2: and, and she gets it. I think early on it was hard. uh, But now she gets it. And uh, like I say, is it, is it a great thing? I mean, of course. Do I wish it was different? Yeah. Like every, I mean, I, I do everything in my power. I mean, anytime I have a bad day or, you know, human, lose my temper with my kids, you know, that's, that's sort of my moral compass. And the thing that always kind of gets me Zeroed back in of like, well, I know what I'm not going to be. I'm going to be, uh, you know, the exact opposite of that. And I want my kids to never be sitting around on a podcast 30 years from now having this conversation uh, with somebody about their right. old man.
1: Right. Well, so let's move on a little bit. Um, you we talked about it. You went to school. You played football. You you wanted to be a federal law enforcement agent. You wanted to be a lawyer. And then you sat down to take the LSAT. Now here's where you and I will get along very well because I sat down and took that very test when I graduated okay. from college and it sucked. And <laughs> uh, it was one of the dumbest tests I've ever taken. It made absolutely no oh, sense God. and had nothing to do with the law. So when you say that's where you lost focus and said, you know what, I think I want to be in the military. I completely understand. Now, do I look back on it and think maybe I should have done a little more. Maybe I should have taken it, maybe more seriously. Yeah, maybe, but you decide you want to go in the military and you decide you want to be a Navy SEAL. Uh, and you start training. Now we got to talk about your training because
2: (laughs) I knew this was coming. Listen, man. Oh yeah.
1: I'm no, look, you're, you're the fitness guru here. You're the CrossFit guy, but (laughs) we've got to talk about your early training regimen. When, when you decided that, Hey, here's a good idea. I'm going to run on the beach. I'm going to swim in the cold water and not only am I going to do that, but I'm going to take sand and rub it all over my crotch and my legs until it gets burned. <laughs> and that's going to teach me how I should do when I go to school. Now, first off, where in the hell did you get that idea?
2: The, my, now, again, in my defense, let's go back. You know, this <laughs> okay. is mid-90s kind of Internet just coming to play. Like Charlie Sheen's movie she is, is out. <laughs> Is Charlie Sheen's movie? It's the Dick Marcinko books, okay? You know, and and I just remember I can't remember it was in the Marcinko books or another one that I read, but I remember one time them talking about one of the worst parts of Buds outside of the cold water was how bad you would get shaped. And having played sports my whole life, freaking jock strap, or you know, whatever, it's like just constant chafing you know (laughs) whether you know football pants whatever it may be and so you know, hey man the mind of a you know 22 year old jock who thinks he's 10 foot and bulletproof like all right what better way to overcome that you know if there's something that's in the way you know you can either go around it or go through it and usually the shortest way is to go right through it so i'm going to go right through this thing and i'm going to build up you know, calluses for it. You know, like, I mean, I still got calluses on the inside of my elbows from playing baseball from headfirst slides. And they're like, Oh, you just got to get the strawberries and build up a callus. So in my dumbass mind, you know, it made sense that I'm going to build up a callus on the inside of my thighs. Now those are your words, not
1: mine. Okay. I just want to point that out. Those are your words.
2: (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, man, just misery. Uh, You know, and, and again, I always say, you know, something happens once it's an event, twice it's a coincidence, three times it's a trend. You know, the trend was there that, hey, I'm not building up a callus. This shit sucks every time. And then, uh, so yeah, you read it when I finally, and the book doesn't do it justice, man. Uh, I wish I could, like, I wish I had a picture of this dude, that SEAL that I took the test in front of.
1: (laughs) That's what I was getting ready to get to, because (laughs) not only did you train like this, which was a horrible idea, but you passed your PT test with flying colors, but you failed the mental test because you tried to tell this guy who's been there and done that, look, here's how I got ready for this. I chafed my balls and I thought that that was going to help me out. Now, I once again asked what was going through your mind that you thought that's going to be a good thing to tell this guy.
2: See, at the time, I thought, like, finally someone that will get it, like, you know, this guy, again, he barely, like, he pulled up, I'm there waiting, and, and I was fortunate, you know, my buddy's dad, who had been a SEAL, uh, you know, we lived down there by Eglin Air Force Base, and so he hooked up at Earlbert Field, uh, you know, the Air Force Special Operations Command, and got in touch with the SEAL liaison, and so instead of me having to go off to a naval base and do it with 200 other swinging dicks, you know, I got to do a one-on-one with this guy. And so this guy shows up and, you know, meet him down at the bay and, uh, like literally got out of his Jeep and just walked over to me
1: did he have like, an aura around know. him did, did you oh, see Oh yeah
2: dude yeah i mean just <laughs> see, i mean again ca- cast out of a movie i mean just like cj7 no doors on it pulls up you know the short brown shorts the black shirt the freaking sweet stash he's like six three and uh I, I hope i always say like man i hope at some point one of these things that i'm out talking on this guy somehow stumbles across it and like holy shit i remember that dumb kid
1: do you remember his yeah, name yeah
2: so I don't, I don't. I mean, I was so freaking scared. Uh, he could have, you know, he probably told me, I just, I remember I called him, sir. He told me to shut up. You know, he, he worked for a living. It's a master chief. And uh, so, I mean, that's really rich. all he said. He's like, all right, let's get started. And then didn't say, you know, he's like, all right, this is a standard. Tell me what to do. I would go do it, come back. And it's when we got done, When you know, like he said, he's like, all right, man, you're in good shape. You know, w- what else are you doing? And this is when I thought coming full circle of like, here's my moment for someone that will understand, you know, the motivation and all the stuff I'm willing to put myself through. And uh, so I told him, I was just like, yeah. So I get the water, then I get out and I throw a bunch of sand down my pants, you know, cause I hear chafings <laughs> really bad. Then I go, and man, he just like, I kid you not. I mean, just like hand, you know, right here in my face. He's like, you did what? And, uh, and I was like, well, I hear chafings. And, and at this point I'm scared shitless. and. He just looked at me and uh son that is the dumbest fucking thing i've ever heard of in my life (laughs) that is like practicing getting kicked in the nuts it sucks every single time so let me give you a little bit of advice in life if something doesn't make sense don't do it (laughs) and uh and that was it that was our interaction and i'm just deflated you know but i tell you though man that was a uh that was a life lesson that carried on, not through training uh, or, you know, ultimately not getting in the military and then going back and trying to get in later, you know, and then even on the battlefield later on of just sometimes I would have that quiet pause in my mind and like, does this make sense what we're doing? And, uh, and So that taught me more than.
1: Yeah. And that's what I was going to say as a commander. Do you ever look back and go, man, I thought the same thing. Like people would tell me I'm going to do this and you're like, you idiot, do it like this. It's so much easier work smarter, not harder.
2: Oh, the the first deployment, getting a call on the radio one day, uh, you know, you know, VBIDs were becoming prevalent. This was, you know, spring, summer before when the insurgency was really, really kicking into high gear and literally getting a mission one day. and was, you know, hey, we have intel reports of a, uh, you know, of a white sedan and the trunk is weighted down and it's parked in this parking lot behind the hotel series. Can you guys go and confirm that and check out the trunk? So you want me to take 30 men to go over for a thing that all signs point to it being a V bid and go confirm. Like, what are we going to do? Walk up on it, pop the trunk. Like, yep, we got one, you know? Yeah. Just some of the stupid shit that would have. So needless to say, we didn't do it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, man, that stuff stuck with me. It really did.
1: Now I want to ask, do you think everything happens for a reason? Do you really feel that way? Because I feel like, I think that passer you can forge your own way, but I think paths are kind of set.
2: I don't. Okay. I don't. I've, I've always now I, I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't say sometimes life throws something your way where it's hard to argue. Uh, But I guess I've always felt that, you know, when people say things happen for a reason, I kind of think there's, you know, there's a people in life that go out and make things happen. And there's other people that sit around and talk about how life's been so hard on them. And I think that, for the people that are that make things happen or are successful, and success being an eye of the beholder, call it happy. It's when something negative goes wrong. Uh, the other people say, "Oh, well, things happen for a reason. I guess it just wasn't meant to be for me." And the other people say, "Well, shit, this happened. Let me go find another way to do it." Uh, but yeah, the reason but that again, I asked that things- though
1: is because you you pass the PT test, you fail kind of the mental test. But then you start having lots of shoulder problems and the Navy says, yeah, we're done. Now let's say you get into the Navy. Let's say you go through, do whatever it is you're going to do. I then the Legion, 9/11. then the Legion never happens. Yeah. Uh, a,
2: those are the things that, and that's
1: what I mean by pass or set, because I, 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 I agree with you. People that want to make things happen, make things happen. But I feel like, paths of where we're supposed to end up are kind of set
2: and that's where i struggle with sometimes i i talk out of both sides of my mouth you know when i get i tell people what i just told you and then i have the mom of one of the guys that i lost you know that second deployment come up and say you know I don't know why God took Jimmy, but I know why he kept you here. And it's because if you weren't here, then this wouldn't have started in all our boys' names. You know, how do you, I don't have a response to that. Uh, So, yeah, so I say I don't think things happen for a reason, but usually not a day goes by where I'm not challenged in some way uh, to maybe think about it from a different perspective
1: to put all this final stuff in perspective before we get into deployment deployments, before we get into the military, we've got to bring one more kind of piece of the puzzle into it. We've got to bring your job and we've got to bring Chrissy into the story because I think yeah. Chrissy is a major factor throughout this entire book at sometimes a very, as a reader, a very frustrating factor. And I say that from, uh, a perspective of being the one that's looking from the outside in. That's the only way I can describe it. Yeah. And, and we'll get more into it as we, we talk about her, but you, you go to CarMax, you, you're doing great. You're promoted quickly to, to buyer. You, you have kind of set your sights on, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is the way we're going to go. Then a guy gives you black Hawk down. That fire starts burning again. And you want to go back mm-hmm. to the military. And you have Chrissy, and she's all on board with you, and everything's going great. And then you get in the military, you get in the army, and you have to be gone quite a bit, right up front. Yeah. And, and it's for a multitude of reasons, whether that be, you know, your officer basic, uh, maybe ranger school, all these kind of things that you have to be gone. And and every time you guys are face to face in the book, it's. We're going to get through this. We're going to do this. And every time you separated, it seemed to go 180 degrees in the other direction. Now, the question that I have for it is, were you different when you left or was she different when you left or were you both different when you left?
2: It was both of us, uh, for sure. And, you know, it's, I'm kind of one of those people that's wired that when I go and do something like that. I'm all in. And I, I'm a big believer, you know, in kind of some of the things that helped me deal with my early childhood was always, you know, the mental discipline and preparation for what's next and always kind of planning for what's next and what's in front of me. And then it's sometimes risking not enjoying what I have right in front of me. And for her, she came from a military life, uh, you know, Air Force dad. Again, she was incredibly supportive of it. Uh, didn't involve any deployments, got to live in different parts of the world. Cool thing. So the idea of a military life, like, heck yeah, this is what I grew up with. This will be awesome. You know, so then you throw that into it and it's like, well, wait, no, I, my dad wasn't gone two and a half of the first three years of, you know, my life. And for me, I'm like mentally preparing myself of like, yeah, you know, all right, you know, I love this woman, you know, we just got married and, uh, but have these other things that i got to prepare for so it was a you know and it's funny the reactions to different people i mean some people have said like you like oh that was frustrating you know and i have others that are just like you know i really hate it for her and it almost felt sorry and can kind of see why Uh, i think it's ultimately just came down to that we were two people who cared for each other you know immensely and you know we had this amazing son together uh but both our ideas of what we thought that experience is going to be like, were completely separate. And then, uh, then you factor in, I get over there and what we're going through, you know, you can't, and, and I probably kept more from her than maybe I needed to,
1: uh, oh, we're going to get have. into that.
2: Yeah. Uh, but you know, so for her, it was always, I'm like, you know, I'm dealing with all this crap of what we're going through and, You can't just pick up the phone and, like, flip the switch. Hey, baby, how's it going? Can't wait to get home. You know, you kind of have to stay in that. You know, you can't do a certain degree, but it's almost faking it in some ways. And for her, it was always that, like, why can't I be that release for you? I know you have all this stuff going on. You're not telling me about it. Why aren't you opening up to me about other things? And so, you know, this small little crevice just became a, you know, a huge, you know, fracture as time went on.
1: Well, you bring it up. So let's get into it. Why can't she be released? Because I thought the same thing reading the book.
2: Yeah, it was. Yeah, compartmentalizing things like as soon as I do that uh, and I you know, people are wired different. Some people can go and just open up that for me, just the, you know, the position I was in with everything that was going on there on Hyphen Street. Uh, if I. If I open up once, then. I open up more and then I'm thinking about stuff while I should be focused on the mission at hand and, you know, right or wrong, you're, you know, in charge of, of 34 men and, you know, what's, you know, quickly becoming one of, if not the most dangerous parts of, of all of Baghdad, all of Iraq, you know, at the time, you know, so it was just that, that guard of or compartmentalized, whatever military cliche you want to use, you know, box in the back of your mind, you just put stuff and you know, at some point it's going to fill up and, uh. Yeah, I just kept it all inside.
1: That was the thing when I when I read through because, you know, I've told you that, you know, I was prior military, but more often uh, I speak from a first responder point of view. Um, When you have jobs, uh, people have to be supportive of each other. But I've also learned not only do people have to be supportive, but you have to explain sometimes why you have to be supportive. And I know that sounds really stupid, but it, it, it it's a basic thing. Like they want – I think they want to be part of it. And I understand exactly what you're saying, compartmentalizing and all those kind of things. And I, I noticed that through the whole thing. But if we're going to be real honest, you didn't really open up to a lot of people in
2: general. No, 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 no. And that's why I ended up in the boat that I was in there for five years after the fact. It and, was – and some of that and again if you want to get all Freudian here and like go back to
1: Oh, I don't uh, think I do.
2: You know, we're we're <laughs> we just uh, maybe not that Freudian <laughs> as you're thinking, you pervert. But uh but no, just like if you want to start getting into you know, the middle part of it, you know, like all I saw growing up was a certain thing. And right. I saw uh there there's a reason, you know, you can kind of put two and two together, you know, of like why did I always want to stand up for people that couldn't stand up for themselves? you know, and, you know, to do that as a young kid, uh, to process that and, and, you know, I internalized it all. And so I had all these feelings inside, you know, like, why did I always go? And, you know, I would get in a fight in a heartbeat, standing up for somebody else. Now I did a horrible job, you know, standing up for myself, but if it involves somebody else, uh, I was there but for me i kept everything in because i just always felt like i could take it put it on my shoulders i'm the one that can take it put that burden on me so it doesn't have to be on someone else now that was naive short-sighted and i've learned and grown from that over the years but uh you know it, it was that same mindset I, I say naive but it was that same mindset that wired me i think to be able to do with those to deal with those things and when those things happened uh i saw others and how they would respond, and not, I hate to use the term, be as strong, because I think that's kind of cheesy, but I think you get what I'm saying. Uh, so it's, it's a double-edged sword. It, it really is. I think it made me, uh, I'm not going to say good, I think it made me effective uh, at my job, and as a leader, for the circumstances we were under, at the, you know, the expense of personal relationships.
1: Well, let's talk about when you, you get over there. So the way I understood it, You were working S2 when you get over there. You were working S2 shop over there. Now, you were still going out on patrols and stuff, working with guys, but your main job was S2, correct?
2: Yeah, but it it was somewhat deceiving. Okay. I worked in the S2 shop at night, and the primary thing was get out, go on as many patrols as you can. You know, shadow these guys, learn from them, learn the terrain, because you're going to be taking over here in a couple of months. Uh, The S2 gig was. I mean, truth be told, uh, and it's one of those, they tell you, like when you go in the army, like somebody gave me this advice, they're like, you know, never volunteer for anything and never, ever let anyone know you can type fast. And (laughs) one of those just random skills that life gave me is uh, I am an incredibly fast typer. And I let that slip one time. And so after all this stuff went down in the day, I would just go to the S2 shop at night. And it was basically, I would work two hours or six hours And it was all about typing up all the after action reports and stuff for the morning brief. Uh,
1: The first time that it got real for you, is that when uh, the RPG struck the Humvee um, and killed uh, Jeremy Hines, or was it before that?
2: So there was an incident before that when I first got there, Uh, I'd been there a couple of days and uh, the platoon that, I thought I was going to be taken over at the time. Uh, they had gone in to one of the battalions or one of the companies, excuse me, that was attached to us from the Arkansas National Guard. Uh, they had uh, they had been attacked and, and lost a soldier. And just seeing that platoon leader who I'd got to know, they introduced me to him. Said, you know, hey, you know, spent a lot of time with him. That's probably going to be your platoon. And just seeing him coming into the uh, into the talk that night, covered in blood. Uh, it's like you know, shit's you know a weekend country, and you're seeing something like that. And then, so that was the platoon I went out with the most. Uh that so yeah, was I got to know the guy. Charlie,
1: uh, I'm sorry, that was, yeah, that was Charlie, right?
2: Yeah, yep, yep okay. second platoon, Char- Charlie 1-9. And uh, so yeah, so I got to know a lot of the guys. And then going over, you know, Hines, who you mentioned, uh, you know, again, I thought I was going to be taken over. He was the PL's driver. So I, you know, and, and I'm not going to claim him that I knew him great because I'm not going to disrespect the other guys that, had a much closer relationship with him, but I'd gotten to know him. And so that was really the first time of like someone that I knew. And then when he was killed by the RPG, you know, it was just another reminder of, you know, shit's real.
1: And so how are you balancing it in your head? So from everything I read in the book, it, it seemed like you wanted to get out there, get into the middle of it, lead soldiers, do all these things. Then you see this, and you see that it's becoming very real. Um, now, the, the first time you're really in action is, uh, from what I understood, at the—I the, think it's like a salt factory?
2: Yeah, so we were actually driving It's actually a little before that. Uh, it was August 12th, so we just hit the anniversary of 2004. Okay. So then when I—so you step back, so when I did take over a platoon— Charlie Company was up there on the the FOB Headhunter ended up becoming FOB Independents at Luthana Airfield right off Haifa Street. And there was a last minute change of plans. And they sent me to be a platoon leader with Alpha Company. Well, Alpha Company had swapped places with that company from the Arkansas National Guard. So, uh, we went down, Alpha Company went down the international zone to be attached to, uh, it was like first of the 153rd Arkansas National Guard. Great soldiers, by the way, you know, no, no knock on National Guard at all, because the company they sent up, their Charlie company, man, those guys went through all kind of shit on Hyper Street and were awesome. But yes, yeah, so I went from thinking I was going to be on all this action there on Hyper Street to down patrolling, you know, just south of the international zone around Baghdad University and nothing was going on. So we did that for about a month. Uh, I mean, Hell, you might as well have been driving around Dallas. I mean, there's nothing happening in that area.
1: <laughs> well, there's uh, plenty happening. Shit, probably, in worse Dallas. In da- <laughs> yeah,
2: probably worse <laughs> in Dallas now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> More I
1: love. Yeah, there's plenty but, happening there.
2: Yeah. But you know, just from a safety standpoint. But then, you know, things on Haifa got so bad that they they pulled us back up there to go to help out, just to have another mechanized company up there. So it was August 12th, and we were going up just to kind of familiarize ourselves with the area. And then that's when they had the You know, again, I always reference Black Hawk Down, you know, straight tires in the road, on fire, black smoke everywhere, forcing us to turn left. Of course, what do our dumbasses do? We turn left. And as soon as we do, a couple teams popped out from around the corner and, you know, fired an RPG, went in between me and my platoon sergeants, Bradleys, and another two-man little fire team popped out. And it was quick. I mean, over instant, like literally fire and forget, they were gone. And uh, so, yeah, that was our our first, uh, you know, call it combat cherry popped. And then, you know, the first time it was a little more sustained was a few days after that in the salt factory where you're talking about.
1: Right. And, and I have that, I, I I mixed the two up. I have it down as August 12th. Uh, that's approaching grenade alley is where everything happened, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was a bigger, and so
1: the salt factory day. So you, you, you kind of get it in your blood then you fire on an enemy, you're, in the, I guess you would say, quote unquote, the thick of battle. Um, and it becomes very important to you then not only that you want to be in it now, cause you know that feeling, but it's also, you called it um, in the book, a tangible win on stuff where if you uh, attack a target or you take a bad guy down or you take them out of action, it's a tangible win. And we'll get into further why you call it a tangible win on this first one. But how are you feeling now? Uh, has anything that you've noticed in your body, has it started to change? Or are you just like, man, this is what I signed up for. This is great. Um, let's keep at it.
2: I think it went, you know, the first initial, the uh, you know, the tires in the road and the first time getting fired on of just being scared shitless to then within a week, the endorphins of what a, fucking rush this is uh not to say i wasn't scared at first you know when you're driving up and there's a lot of wild stuff about that day man uh have you seen anybody kind of in this world the podcast world or the book called uh the terrorist whisperer yeah look him up so it's a while okay. it's and i'm not bore the story but uh he's in america now but he was uh Iraqi units. So if you go back to that day, the reason we got brought up for that whole thing on the salt factory was to go rescue an Iraqi army unit that had been pinned down and was getting their ass here. And we pulled up, and there is the body, the decapitated, you know, hanging from the wires uh, there on talil Square. So, anyways, fast forward, you know, till two years ago. This is 2004, and a couple of years ago, get put in touch with this guy and uh, start talking. And he's been on a bunch of podcasts, he's got a book out and he ended up uh became the youngest sergeant major in the iraqi army
1: hamadi jassim kind of is early. his name
2: yep yep yeah. and uh good friend of mine and so as we're sitting there talking and and we met because it was kind of a friend of a friend knew him and say hey my book was about to come out he's like this guy may be able to make some introductions from you and we had no idea and then from talking we figured out uh, i was listening to one of his podcasts one time and he was describing that day uh and the reason he got promoted when uh basically the majority of the group that he was a part of got wiped out on to square in late summer 2004 and it was an american cavalry group that came in and rescued he and the remaining few of his guys and so just freaking small world man so yeah now he's a good friend of mine now but yeah that was the ones that we went in and uh so we took a lot of pride you know we you know, unfortunately, got there too late. And there was a lot of dead Iraqi army, uh, but we did save. Uh, we did save some. And, you know, who would have thought 15 years later, one of the guys who saved would be a good buddy of mine.
1: When you see that first body hanging, people don't understand. And I say this about first responders, law enforcement, things like that. People that don't do it don't understand. I, I want to know what you're thinking the first time you see that kind of stuff, because that's not a normal thing to see. That's not something that you go home, scrub off your brain, have a beer and you're done with it. That stuff burns into your memory. And so what is it like when you're seeing this? Because as the book goes on, I I really feel this way. As your book goes along and your deployments go along, things get worse and worse and worse. And and it, it almost seems like it's a never ending cycle of getting worse. So, you're really starting to see it now. You've had a taste of combat. You've been fired upon. Now you see this. What are you thinking?
2: So it's wild, man, Just to go back to that day and the effect that has on you. And so right before we got up there, uh, there was a, a tank platoon had been a, it's a different day. Sorry, had been attached to us and we were going up and someone had come out from around the corner and popped some shots and the, Gunner and the, or the TC, or was, I can't remember who it was. Anyway, 50 cal on top of the M1, like caught the RPG guy, and like literally cut him in half. And you know, like that was one of the first times like seeing a dead body. Now that was like, wow, that's fucking badass. We just killed that dude. He was trying to, you know, but then you see the other deal, this body hanging, and then it's a completely separate thing. You know, it's one thing when you're killing them, All right, I hate to say it's cool, but You get it's like it's that rush of you're doing what you're supposed to do but you see that and then you're like you know man and i go back and i I hate to kind of go back to the to the quote you played at the beginning which was badass by the way uh thank you just you you think about like the will it takes to do that to another human being and you start getting to some of the stuff we talk about the second deployment of what the the she in our area were doing the suny you know drill bits and finding bodies tortured by drill bits and you know it's the will that another human being can do that out of hatred for someone else or just out of pure will to make a point uh it's twofold one it's scary uh it scares the shit out of you because you can't help but not imagine that being yourself if if something you put in the wrong situation but then the complete flip side is you're just like you know man what if What if the world could use that same will for good, then we wouldn't be over here having to do this kind of stuff we're doing right now or like what's going on in the world today as we talk.
1: In your defense, though, when you say it's cool when we're doing it, when you see something like this, though, doesn't that kind of embolden your stance? Not that it's cool, but we're fighting animals here. We're fighting people that will reduce themselves to nothing to inflict harm and pain and I don't want to say that it, it checks off the block in your brain. Like, okay, it's good that we're doing this, but doesn't it yeah. embolden your stance a little bit? Like, yeah, no. this is why we're here yeah. because of these guys.
2: Yeah. hundred percent. No. And, and look, you won't ever hear me apologize for any bad guy we kill And unfortunately there's collateral damage that goes along with that, that you hear me talk about sometimes. And while that sucked and that hurt, uh, you know, maybe not hurt, not, can't lie and say that unfortunate call it that. But the reason that should happen was not us. It was because of, you know, the, the evil, you know, the, the evil, that men do, you hear what I'm talking about? It does exist in the world and, uh, you can't negotiate with evil. Uh, you have to, and that's why I say, sound cool. I'm not trying to sound like some tough macho guy, oh, we killed people or go and crush evil. But you know, the simple fact is evil exists and there's only one way to respond to evil in that world. And I was happy to be on the, uh, more often not the, the giving and the receiving side.
1: And talking about that, do you ever worry in your brain while you're in the middle of this? Uh, you can't become them. You can fight them and put that evil down and go to extremes to put that evil down, but you can never, ever become them. And there's a very, very fine line to tread on that.
2: Oh, that's the, you hear people talk about the rush and it's like a drug I've never done drugs, but I hear the rush is what people, you know, huh, I hear, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my friend says, yeah, but, uh, right. but no, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's that fine line between, uh, the thrill of the rush or the addiction. And you're right. I mean, it's, uh, you see and do these things and, but I mean, we can get some wild shit like stuff. I saw the Iraqi army, you know, that was our thing. You know, if we ever detained somebody, we were questioning them. We'd be like, tell us what we want to hear. If not, we're going to give you the Iraqi army. You know, and we have standards. And I remember sitting there one day and, uh, this guy wouldn't give, and, and we knew he was a part and had dead in an IED that ended up killing some local civilians. And, uh, you know, as it turns out, one of the local Iraqi army guys, it was his family. That was, uh, you know, family there can be, you know, 15th, cousin, you know, however, they do their thing, but uh, he wouldn't talk. So we handed him over. And I mean, like, there was this line between us and the Iraqi gate. And I mean, just remember, handing this guy off and like watching this guy take his Kevlar helmet off and just like literally bash this guy's head in. And uh, that's the line you're talking about, because you know, that guy became one of them. And was Absolutely. No
1: and uh, I, I think that, that that gets into some people's brains. I think that that battle versus, I don't want to say good and evil in their brain, but that battle to ride that line tears them apart from top to bottom. Yeah. Because it becomes blurred sometimes. and And I'm talking... Yeah not just in military, not just in warfare. I think that line can get blurred where you are right there on it. I mean, let's be honest about it.
2: No, I look, man, I, I got a tattoo. uh, I got a bunch of tattoos, but, uh, but one of them is very symbolic and people ask me, which was, you know, it's kind of a dark tattoo and, you know, my wife that I'm with now, you know, we weren't together during all this. So she met this businessman and like finds out about this, you know, other crazy part of my life. And, you know, hey, friend, you know, it's on my back. So like, you know, that's a uh, always laugh. I'm like, interesting time. Like, well, there's a reason she probably saw me with my shirt off, you know, the first time and you know, like, Hey, what's this tattoo mean? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, this is probably not the right time for us to have that. Did discussion. you lie? <laughs> you
1: be honest right now. Did you lie that first time?
2: No. Okay. All right. No, all right. I just, uh, you know, but coming back to it is, uh, you know, the the basic premise behind it is she was like, you know, what does it mean? And I'm like, it's symbolic of the things that uh, I've done and I know I'm capable of, but it's also my reminder that I never want to be that man again and that kind of full of hate again. Uh, And that was just my way of kind of coming to terms with it.
1: Going back into, uh, Iraq and being over there, you're finally, um, you're finally afforded some leave. You come back, uh, you, we can say that you and Chrissy are not on the best of terms. As a matter of fact, I think that she has said a divorce, correct? You've been thinking that, well, you compartmentalize that, but you're thinking that the whole time you're there, right? That there is a, a definite divorce in the, in the future.
2: Yeah. She had told me, you know, this isn't going to work out uh, between us. Uh, I'm not going to do this while you're gone. You got enough other stuff going on, but let's we'll start making plans for when you get back. I was, we're going to get a divorce.
1: And so I don't really want to talk whether that got to you. Cause I think in, in, it had to have in some way. But you come back on leave, you go home. I, I think it's hilarious what your mom says. She asks if she can buy you a six-pack of beer, take you to a strip <laughs> club, <laughs> whatever best, man. whatever it may be yeah. that you need. And you say, look, I just want to be with family, friends. Uh, I just want to kind of put that, I guess you would say, compartmentalize what's going on over there and take this in while I'm here and kind of focus on yeah. this. So you do it. You go out with your friends. You have a friend that likes to talk loud, gets on a microphone, says that you're uh, a war hero and that uh, if there's not a drink in front of you from every patron in the bar, that he's going to kick each and every one of their asses. You start getting (laughs) drinks all night long. You have a good time. You have started to decompress from everything that's going on over there. Are you feeling anything? This is going to be kind of a two-part question are you feeling anything that you felt looking back on it now during or after that second deployment? Do you feel any of those feelings right now on this first one while you're on leave? No, nothing.
2: As you talk about comparing how I felt on leave compared to when I came back after the second one.
1: Uh, either during, yeah. because because we're going to yeah. talk about it, but during that second deployment, I think things took a real change. Are you yeah. seeing yeah. any, even like a microcosm of any of those things right now, or are we completely, I guess you would say good right now?
2: I'm good, because a couple of things. One, I, I took an immense, now it was a lot of shit we were going through, uh, but I took an immense amount of pride in what we were doing and uh, really felt like we were making a difference. You know, we were fighting the Al-Qaeda and Iraq guys. Oftentimes these weren't Iraqis that we were killing. They were foreign fighters from other countries. And, you know, again, people sometimes got to go back. You know, this is, this is a long time ago. So one of the early things is let's fight them over there so we don't have to fight them here. And I really felt like that's what we were doing. And so, yeah, I mean, I had a lot going on to deal with. It was easy. like the brake to decompress as you called it was perfect like it was decompressing the chrissy stuff you know straight up man that's in the box like we talked about it's pushed away not going to think about it that's just what i do uh so i was good i was good until up which i think i know what you're going to bring up next uh i was all good until then
1: so you you're doing fine on this nothing that you're feeling yeah. uh your aunt and uncle set you down And they tell you, you're going to come over and see us. You say, well, if I got time, they said, no, you're going to make time and come over here. You knew something was important.
2: The, the The background behind that is I went up to Birmingham from Florida to see all my college buddies. And my aunt lived in Montgomery. And my uncle lived down in Dothan, and he was a surgeon down in Dothan. And she said, hey, Scott's up in Montgomery visiting me. We want you to come by on your way back to Florida. And it was like an hour out of my way total. And uh, the reason I told them I couldn't make it, I said it was bad weather. I was so hungover from the night before that, uh, yeah. And then she said, uh, she's like, no, you're you're coming down. You're coming down tonight.
1: So you go over and you find out, they set you down, they talk to you, and they tell you uh, your mother has a brain aneurysm. And like I said, yeah, one to- as you go through this book, it gets worse and worse and worse. So they they set you down, they tell you this. What are you thinking?
2: Kind of probably what you're like, you know, like, man, who did I piss off type deal? You know, I got this personal relationship going and while, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of what I'm doing over there. Uh, it's not easy. This was supposed to be my break from that. And then I come home and instead it's, you know, tenfold, you know, just on a personal level of, of what I'm going through. Uh, yeah, that was probably the immediate reaction, but then it just went into, all right, so what are we going to do with this? Uh, what are we going to do? And so, yeah, so I got my leave extended and was able to, uh, you know, to be there for the surgery and, you know, and they, they told me, and that's what's, you know, and again, uh, again, it just speaks volumes to my mom, you know, that she'd sat there and spent, you know, I'd been home a week and a half at that point. Uh, but she refused to tell me because she said, I know you, in her eyes in her mind, you know, he has enough going on in the world right now. He doesn't need to worry about me. And it was my aunt and uncle that intervened and like, you know, no Vicki. He, he not only deserves to know, he needs to know, uh, you know, kind of just in case things went South when I went back. So yeah, stayed there and, uh, was there for the surgery. And, uh, fortunately everything came out. Okay. They caught it, uh, you know, before it ruptured,
1: you, uh, you see her and you a lot. Cause, kind of sounds like the same person
2: you know it's we're we are as much opposite as we are alike if that makes sense again i'm talking out of both sides of my mouth she is just this incredibly uh we both kind of had two different things that we wanted out of life but i think the common denominator between us is and she won't admit it but i always tell her i'm like you you always talk about like you know, why am I wired the way I am? And why have I, you know, and, and I got it from having you as an example, just this incredible resiliency of, you know, she always tells me like all these things that I went through in life. And I turn it around and remind her of some of the things that I know she's been through in life. And yet she continues to have a positive attitude and and move forward and always try to be, you know, put others before herself. Uh, so again, those are, that's, that's the me and her or the her and me, I should say.
1: I I think more of it whenever you say that, when she says you already have enough on your plate, she's not going to burn you with it. It almost kind of sounds like what you said about telling Chrissy or other people, not going to put it on your plate. It's on mine. I'll take care of it and I'll figure it out on my own. Yeah. I think I got it from. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, And you almost, I mean, you really almost can't fault you for it. It's, it's in almost your DNA.
2: Yeah. No, I agree, man. And I always give her a hard time. Like I go back, I try to remind her of stuff like that. And then she was like, no, you're nothing like me. You're know, you so much stronger. You know, all crap mom says, and I always remind her, I'm like, mom, remember back when I was a teenager one time and you're just like, you know, I would be snapping, you know, being a teenager and arguing back with you and, you would be like, oh, my perfect boy who's so smart, who never does anything wrong. And then you would just look at me and be like, where do you get this sarcastic attitude from? And I'm like, oh, shit, right here in front of me. He just did it. So, yeah, man, she's the best.
1: Now there's a second part to this story. Your aunt and uncle also tell you that you're going to make one more trip while you're extending out your leave. That they yeah. have... Uh, points on their airline miles and that you are going to go see Chrissy and you're going to work this out. Now it's compartmentalized. So you've got to be thinking right then, like it's not going to work. I have stuff to do, but you go do it anyway. Now here's where it gets crazy for me that I I've got to understand. What did you two say to each other to do 180 degree? Because divorce was on the table. She said, I cannot do this you are literally at the end of your leave heading back to do the same thing in the same country. What could you possibly have said to each other to, to rekindle the feelings?
2: Uh, there was nothing said. I think it was when all that came up with my mom, it just caused the instant, uh, you know, it's human nature. Like all of a sudden our problems go away. And, you know, and again, you know, we had something good and, so everything that you, when it went then it came to the concern for my mom, you know, concern for me. Uh, so it was more of, you know, and when I went back out there, it was a, you know, look, we weren't naive. We didn't go back and like, everything's forgotten. We're hunky dory. Life is great. It was, you know what, this is worth, uh, giving it a shot when I get back. That was kind of the, uh, that was kind of the agreement.
1: You get done with leave, you head back over. When you get back over, your friend Adam's killed. Yeah. Now this is where, and tell me if I'm wrong, but in the book, this is where I think things took their turn right then.
2: I think that was, you know, I had known other people uh, that had been killed, not well, but the first time like having someone very close to you, I mean, heck Cole, you know, his middle name is Adam. Uh, you know, that was when, you know, It's very easy to, you know, you don't realize that at the time, but if you, you know, in hindsight, you look back and kind of say, you know, like, when was, when was the beginning? You know, like everything on the first is like all this pride in what we were doing and everything was great. We, a mission, an enemy to fight back at. And it was the end of that deployment and this culmination that should be a celebration. And then it ends with this shitty event, losing a, a great friend, an incredible man. And then I think it's safe to say that was the peak and over the remaining, my remaining time in the military was, a steady and, and sometimes drastic, uh, drastic fall.
1: And it's interesting that you say that's where the peak should have been. And it reminds me of another story that you told in there when you guys first get into country and you're being trained. And I think it's, I think it's on the first deployment where these guys are going out on their last patrol and they get killed. That was
2: That was the second deployment. That
1: was the second deployment when you got there. Yeah. But I look at that, and I look at your friend Adam. That's your peak, and everything's ending, and we're supposed to be going home, and this is all, and then this happens. Then you come back on the second deployment. These guys are supposed to be home. They're on their last patrol, and they're killed. And again and again, you see life is fleeting. It's not waiting around for anybody, and there's nothing that you're going to do to stop what's going to happen
2: yeah you just sort of come to the and that's you know like that was to this day that's one of the things uh there's a couple of things that always like stick out to me uh and lots and lots of horrible things but like some that are just a lot have been able to kind of come to grips with but like that's one that it's really wild I, about six months ago uh was on a different podcast and this guy reached out to me and again, when i say that unit like their last patrol like you do the left seat, right seat rides, uh, you know, the first week they're in control, a couple of us ride with them. The second week it's most of us and a few of them, like the majority of their, unit know, had packed up back in Kuwait, these dudes, there was maybe, you know, eight, 10 of them left across the different companies spread out, you know, kind of two guys with each company, two or three guys. And, uh, it was our engineer company and it was the engineer company that was leaving, uh, yeah, and like on the way home from the last mission, hit and uh, lose a couple of guys. And a guy heard me on a different podcast and reached out to me. And and I remember meeting him. He's like, "You may not remember this. We met." Uh, and I did. And as it turned out, like one of those guys that was killed was one of his best friends. And he was like, "You know, do you know someone that can tell me the story? Because uh, all we like." We were in Kuwait, you know, like once you leave, you don't find out all the details you just like they were killed by an EFP. That's all we ever knew. And we knew it was around this area. Uh, so, man, it was just gut wrenching one night. So I got my buddy who had been the engineer company commander, who's just an awesome dude and was willing to talk about it. And, you know, connected these guys via text. And I'm like, all right, y'all can drop me, have a separate conversation. And they just started going and like basically relive that whole thing, you know. 2007 so this is 2020 13 years after and as I hear this guy i was just like you know he was all kind of tore up but he's like i i I know now 13 years later i know what happened to my buddy so yeah it's just a shitty shitty deal man
1: i think though the good thing that you get from it is closure for that guy i think that's what he can finally kind of close that chapter uh, and and I think you speak about that a lot in the book of kind of closing that chapter or, or coming to terms with it and knowing what really happened. Um, I want to talk about before we go into the redeployment, but I want to talk about leading up to it where you are taking over as company commander. First, you're acting company commander. Then you actually are asked to take over the company. But you're training these guys. You're with them all the time. You... Um, have by all stretch of the imagination, you have a fantastic unit that's working for you. The men love each other. You, uh, they love the command. They love the non-commissioned officers. Everyone seems to be gelling. This is like the unit. If you want to go somewhere with them, this is the unit to be, would you agree with that?
2: We had an incredibly unique situation of, you know, for a conventional army unit to see the amount of combat that we saw that first deployment. And not all of it was on a grand scale of say a Fallujah or a Sadr city, but just the day in day out, uh, you know, I, I don't think anything came close to what was on Hyper street that year we were there, you know, so yeah, you had this very, you know, refined and uh set of skills with conventional army. That was, I think something to be envied by a lot, you know, with that comes the camaraderie, uh, And then, so we come back and I'm a platoon leader in Alpha Company they send me over to be the XO of Charlie Company. Well, remember when I first got there, I was going to be a platoon leader in Charlie Company. So I already knew the guys. We were on the same fob. We worked together day in and day out. So there is a level of trust. My first sergeant had been the platoon sergeant. He was the acting first sergeant at first. Uh, He had been the platoon sergeant for third platoon Charlie Company. So it's like, You know, all right, our leadership is now two dudes that went through the same ship we did this first deployment. We know them. They respect them. They respect us. And while there is a lot of guys came back, you know, you come back from a deployment, dudes scattered. But kind of the core of that 135-man mechanized infantry unit, kind of the core 50-60 that remained when we got back was the leadership and all the E6s, E7s, and E5s. It was all the younger guys who took off. So we just made this transition of we getting new soldiers in. We we had our way. It worked. Uh, you know, arrogant. Uh, you know, I would say cocky is is a better way to because we had kind of been there and and uh, and done that and done it well. Uh, you know, to say that it's the you know what every other unit should strive to be. I don't know. Some people say that. I'll just say that. Uh, I wouldn't trade that group of men. I mean, there, there's a reason I gave up and you know withdrew my my SFAS packet was an opportunity to spend another deployment with that man once they offered me command.
1: So I think this is where you talked about, that's where the peak should have been at the end of that last deployment. But I feel like in the book, in your brain right now, this is where the peak's kind of coming. You've got the perfect company.
2: This is your peak.
1: Um,
2: That's why I said in hindsight, you would say the other, but you're absolutely right.
1: Right. So... When you talk about the peak, uh, Christy's back in your life. Uh, you've got the, the perfect unit. Your guys are getting along. Uh, you get over there, and the big thing is the EFPs and IEDs. You you really start talking about them here. Um, yeah. And you you talk about faceless killers over there because they're setting these things, getting away. And I think at one point in the book you talked about You wish, maybe sometimes it seemed crazy, but that you could talk to these guys and go, how did you pull this off? How did you get away with this? And so when you come back over with all this gusto, because I think that's what it is. You get done with the first deployment. You come back. You guys, like I said, have a great unit. Everything's going great. You come back over. You got this gusto, and then you see this. And this time around, there's really no tangible wins. You t- you talk about tangible wins on this one, um, so on this deployment we're talking about a lot about um, you. You feel like it's a kind of a different kind of battle. I think at one point in the book you say that you would have um, given anything to have the kind of battle that you had before, but this one's kind of no tangible wins. Um, nothing's going on now. You have to make kind of your first command decision, and that is to reassign uh, first platoon. You decide because that's kind of your new guys. It's got some senior NCO leadership. But this is kind of the first time that you see people, I don't know if I'd use the word or questioning your command, but they're definitely um, looking at you from a different angle once you make this decision. And so this is where I want to start talking about decisions. And I feel like this is where decisions in your life started kind of taking a turn on you. So let's talk about this one first of why you chose that and what you did. Now you you describe in the book that you don't need as command to explain every decision that you make, but you felt a little, uh, weird about this decision. Not, not necessarily weird, but you, you definitely felt this decision.
2: Yeah, because I knew what the optics were going to be. So I talked to you about earlier about how that kind of core group of 50, 60 guys that we had left uh so we made the decision to we built up third platoon first and then so we kind of took the the NCOs that we had uh the majority of them were in second and third platoon and then the few remaining ones at the E6 we had like a E6 I think that's platoon sergeant and they were in first platoon with just a couple of guys so we built up third platoon first and just sort of that core leadership were a couple of the studs from the first deployment there was always the fact that my first sergeant had come from third platoon that we looked out for them. Uh, some of the guys were, uh, <laughs> the, the nice way to put it, they could be a pain in my ass, but damn, they were good at their job. Uh, so there was a sense of favoritism there. Then we built up second platoon. Uh, they had some some rock stars there. One of the guys, Terry Prater, who, you know, as we'll get to, was, ended up being... One of the guys we lost you know he had won the silver star first deployment uh so i say that the so we built up second and third platoon and then first platoon was kind of the one that as we got near and near deployment any new soldiers we got all went to first platoon so it sort of became the somebody would show up before hey we think you're a better fit for third you're a better fit for second uh at the end it was like oh you just go to first platoon and then we ended up getting this freaking stud platoon leader a guy named josh norton and I uh, mean, again, the NCOs were awesome as well. Uh, the soldiers were awesome, but right or wrong, the optic was going to be uh, because there were more new guys in first platoon than there were in second, that the CO and first sergeant were going to keep second and third platoon because that was their boys and they were going to push first platoon off. And you know, to me, my mind was you know that old rule. Whenever you're asked to give up a, a unit and detach someone, you're supposed to give up your best. And while all three had their own traits that uh, made them the best at one particular thing, uh, I truly felt like, as a whole, and a lot of it had to do with the leadership of of Norton, uh, the three platoon leaders I had, and the one of the other guys, the stud also. But Norton was just this. No nonsense. And I know when you go to an environment like that, sometimes the other company may kind of take advantage of you. And while the other guy may have been a stud, he was a go-getter and would say yes to everything. And Norton was the kind of guy that would not be afraid to tell another commander, like, sir, this is bullshit. You're you're taking advantage of us. Uh, so I just felt like that platoon had the, the temperament, the leadership that would be most successful. If I sent one of the other groups, A, they would be a pain in the ass for that group I sent them to. And when they weren't being a pain in the ass to them, they would be back at my barracks being a pain in the ass to us, telling us why the fuck did you sent us over there with these ship bags, which they weren't, they were a great unit. So, yeah, I, I felt it was important to, you're right, you don't got to explain everything, but something as big and key as that, I knew it wasn't going to be received well. And I knew no matter what I said, their mind was kind of already made up, but I was damn sure going to say my piece.
1: Do you see anyone after the decisions made do you see that that uh, that it was what you thought it was going to be or did it quickly pass over
2: I think some of it lingered uh with some of the soldiers for a long time I think there's some to this day and not that I think I know I mean there still see some stuff on social media of, of like you guys weren't even part of Legion you were attached to somebody else or you know, you guys kicked us to the curb. You know, there, there's always going to be a few of those, and that's that's part of it. That comes with the job. You know, and not necessarily directed at me. So now it's just more directed at the unit leadership as a whole. And that's fine if they want to direct it at me. I'm okay with that. As a whole, I think the majority of it, it passed pretty quick. Uh, they actually, once they kind of got over the, the kicking the balls part of it, they liked the unit they got assigned to. They actually got more, you know, True contact, more similar to Hyper street than we did. Uh, now, eventually, they got moved up and and back to us. Not with Legion, they got moved to a. Uh, we were Bravo Company One Eight. They got moved to a uh, Delta Company One Eight. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it passed.
1: So, as we move on, uh, let's talk about FOB. Uh, I think it's called Rustamaya. Is is yeah yeah yeah. So <laughs> you find out you're not going to be living so well um that that they're you're gonna be moved out into some forward areas you're gonna lose maybe internet some electricity some some nice sleeping but the way it's going to be broken up is a couple days out a couple days back in to rest kind of get cleaned back up and then go back out um are you seeing anything different now is there anything that you're like okay this is a little like the first one or are you still kind of like what are we doing here
2: no it's was- completely different, man. It was, so, you know, so we, we, get there, uh, November, 2006, you know, we leave in October, Kuwait, a couple of weeks, get in country in November. And then as soon as we get there, so you get there in November, uh, you know, you know, you're going to miss a Thanksgiving and a Christmas cause 12 right. month deployment, as soon as we get there announce the surge. So, all right, you're now three extra months. So now you're going to miss two Thanksgivings, two Christmases. Oh, Hey, now give up one of your companies or one of your platoons to go to somebody else. Uh, And oh, by the way, the mission now is not go out and targeted operations like we had that first deployment. It's 24-7 presence in sector. So not only did we rarely go out as a company, uh, you've rarely been out as a full platoon. All platoons were split up into small groups. And, you know, we're coming into this area that, you know, you're hearing about the rise of, of EFPs and this sniper threat uh talking to the unit before us you know like hey we're trying to hear like hyperstreet stories they're like then that shit never happens here no one ever comes out and fights you they just get blown up and more and more intel coming about that efps are just going to get worse and worse you know so then you got to go and you know sell that turd to your men of you know yeah we're in the most heavily you know efp area and all of iraq it's going to get worse and uh Oh, by the way, those hour, hour and a half missions we used to do on Haifa Street way back when, and maybe it would turn into longer if we got a big firefight. You know, no, now I want you to go drive around for eight hours, split your platoon up, go drive around, and uh, we got to have 24-7 presence in sector.
1: So. So that raises, I mean, you're out on one hour. Yes, there was lots of fighting and stuff, but you're out for eight hours. With them just setting out explosives, no hand to hand fighting, no uh, not hand to hand, no in your face fighting where you guys are on the ground, it's just explosives going off. Um, that that's gotta raise the level of everyone like, what the hell are we doing?
2: Yeah. And so yeah. you know, and it's it's a, and then like all right, so you got all this going on. So the coming back to the five rest of Maya, five rest of Maya was great everyone gets settled and then it's like, okay, you're going to leave five Rustamaya Maya and you're going to go live out amongst the people. So, you know, and this is all going down, you know, again, from November to January, like this all happens that quick. So, uh,
1: that's a, that's yeah, an awesome first go at it as being a company commander, uh, your first couple of months being a company commander in a war zone, because no matter how much syrup you pour on that shit, you're not making pancakes out of what's going on.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, if anything, uh, you know, look, man, you know, you got the job that's, you know, it, it comes with it. You get your orders. We all got orders. You go and sell it. Uh, you know, and some of it was just, you know, the kind of, you know, we all have our own leadership style and, uh, I never, I, I think it's okay that you can, disagree with what the people I mean, even the business world today people are like you know what we're going to get behind closed doors and we're going to yell and holler but we come out we're going to be on the united front and i'm like so people are going to see right through that shit and you know back to the example i gave earlier about you know hey go check out this car it looks like a car bomb go verify like my men would look at me like i was a fucking idiot if i was like guys we have our orders we're going to do this you know so yeah so no, i mean i say that like guys look these are orders you know we uh I don't like it any more than you do. I, I didn't try to polish that turd, uh, but I'm like, we are going to do it. It's our job. You know, when we all raise our right hand and, you know, bo- volunteered to go do this, none of us had a gun put to our head to put over here. Uh, you can't have it both ways. You can't, you know, relish in the good and how exciting Hyphen Street was. But now all of a sudden when the mission, you know, and, and the situation changes, then all of a sudden, oh, this is fucked up. The army's screwing me. These people don't know what no, you, you can't, And and I had that conversation with them, Uh, you know, did they all like it? No. Did I believe in what we were doing? No. But I think there was at least a level set of honesty uh, amongst the men. And it it didn't make the mission of what we were doing any easier, but at least maybe uh, easier to put up with. I don't know.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I, I think that's the way um, that it almost has to be done over there. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of time to, to – you bring up the business world and we're going to get behind the doors and we're going to mesh this out and then we're going to come out and be a unit in front. It's a whole different world. There's not time for that bullshit. There's a mission at no. hand. Whether that mission be boring, exciting, whatever it may be, it's a different kind of world. There's none of this we're going to just go and go and go until we figure out what our differences are. It's get the mission done and get it done now. Yeah. And that kind of takes us to where everything, to me, in the book fell apart. March 14th. 15th.
2: Uh, I guess it starts on the 14th. starts on
1: the 14th, goes into the 15th. Um, I I, I want you to just walk through this story. I I don't want to ask a lot of questions right up front. I just want you, because I think it's best if you explain the whole thing, what you're out doing, um, and, and it goes back to that tangible win in what you're going to talk about, yeah. what you were doing. Um, and then uh, just walk us through the entire, from the 14th into the 15th.
2: Yeah. So we were, uh, in an area, uh, Eastern Baghdad, our patrol base was out in the outskirts of Sadr city. And we had gone to an area. I think it was called five war horse before, and that was the old two, five cab back from 2004, the Sutter City uprising uh, back in April. Uh so as I say that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of fighting. Obviously, then Americans couldn't go into Sodder City after that, and the area we were living in, that FOB, after that deployment in early 05, no one had been in, no Americans had been at it for over a year, and no Americans had patrolled up in that area for over a year. But as part of the surge, we pushed out further, and uh, because of the experience that we had that first deployment, my battalion command. Our leadership wanted to put us up out kind of at the forefront, tip of the spear or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, yeah, so as it, as it turns out, and again, you find some of the stuff out in hindsight. The area we went into was kind of, uh, you know, call it the the primary, you know, supply road whatever for a lot of the EFPs that came into all of Baghdad. Uh, they were more predominant on the Shia side just because of the Iranian influence and the technology and where they learned that. And we got put up in an area that well, we got up there, talked to a few of the locals. They're like, hey, we're cool with you guys here. You guys stay in this little area right around your base. You won't have any issues. If you go up that road past this other road, he's like, that's where all the bad guys are. That's where they make all the bombs. And so we didn't at first because we kind of had to get the lay of the land. And then early March, we started pushing further and further north and then got intel of, uh you know, there is this site that supposedly they had a bunch of stuff buried and we get up there and start digging around. and turns out it's a mosque, which we usually left mosque alone, but that was not part of the intel that we'd given. So, yeah, so that went over like a fart in church. So soon after that, uh, the EFPs really increased in our area uh, significantly. So that's early March. And I give that context because it kind of steps. When I say there was a quick ex- escalation of things, uh, there had been a kind of steady contact up to that point. But once we went up past that road, uh, is when things really hit the fan right after that. Uh, so the next week, March 14th, we get a call that uh, one of the few times we did get to go do a targeted op that a guy there kind of close to our, our fob, uh, weapons runner did a lot with the Iranians, uh, that he was in this area. So they sent us out as a company, uh, so, it was a weird deal. So, my third platoon was back at Rustamaya refitting. So, I had my second platoon with me, uh, had my tank platoon with me, and then I actually got a platoon from Charlie Company that had a patrol base out close to us. They came over. So, went, cordon operation, and just started, you know, mechanizing interest, man. We're not SEALs or Delta coming in and, and little bursts, you know, fast roping in. You know, everybody and their brother hears this. So, we just, block off this huge area and it's just house by house uh going through it and this started on the 14th probably about i don't know nine o'clock ten o'clock at night or so can't really remember Uh, but you can imagine going through all these houses it just went on and on and i say that so the next morning we had a mission with the iraqi army that uh, had to have two platoons so third platoon was refitting uh they were gonna come back out the next day, do this mission with Second Platoon, which was basically a glorified photo op of look at the American forces out there working with the Iraqis. It was doing a you know, traffic control point, some bullshit like that. And you know, again, I, I say bullshit, that was the mission. We didn't always like it, but that was the mission. And we may not like it, but we're gonna do our job. But as the night goes on and on and on, you know, I'm out with second platoon and so a well, little after midnight. I requested relief from that mission the next morning and was told no, that we had to be there. Uh, you know, like, hey, we still haven't found this guy. We're gonna be out here all night. You know, why can't one platoon do it? Like, no, we gotta have two platoons. That's what we told them. So this goes on several more hours and basically every hour on the hour I ask uh, and I keep getting denied. And so we finally get this guy. Uh, we actually found a target, you know, I don't know, 3.30, 4 in the morning, taken back up to our patrol base up there at a uh, Legion base, we called it. And at that point, uh, I'm told that, okay, you guys have been out all night, but we can't just have one platoon. So send all of 2nd platoon back with the detainee, and then half of them can go back out with 3rd platoon for the uh, for the mission with the Iraqi Army. And so 2nd platoon uh come back to the 5, they go back to the base, and this is all, you know, 5 in the five thirty, six in the morning, and take the prisoner back, do all the paperwork with that, and then one section, you know, so it's two Bradleys and two Humvees from 2nd Platoon, they're coming back out because they need to refit and do some things, and there was this weird coordination going on because we had planned the mission of 3rd Platoon meeting us with 2nd Platoon, so we're like, all right, let's get 2nd Platoon back out to the base, let them refit, and then we'll send third platoon out and uh so yeah anyways point being uh second platoon is coming back out now let me step back because i'm sure you're going to bring it up uh and i didn't purposely leave it out as we were going that morning with uh all the second platoon to drop off the detainee i was going with them and we were going to leave a few of their guys back to sleep something happened with third platoon there was a mix-up on uh I don't wanna like call anybody out, but it wasn't any of my studs, I'll say that. Someone had kind of dropped the ball on something. And I was like, Hey, I gotta figure this shit out. So I got out. I was just like, you know, Prater, I gotta stay here. And uh got out and I was like, Want me to get Arnold? He was like, Yeah, get Arnold back in here. So it's like Arnold, get your ass in here, you know, take my spot. So I go back in, get on the radio, get everything kinda hashed out with third platoon, make sure they're set on where they have to meet up with second platoon later, and then uh like, all right, cool, I got 30 minutes, going to lay down, catch a quick nap, been up all night. I mean, everybody, it's other guys that have been up more than me and didn't get a chance to sleep. So that was when 2nd Platoon was coming back out to, to meet up with us and uh, got hit by an EFP, the Lee Bradley. So they had a, you know, Bradley, Humvee, Humvee, Bradley. And, uh, Lee Bradley struck by an EFP and it was actually real close to Alpha Company's patrol base on a road ironically called Dead Girl Road. Uh, and I never... Heard the back. I heard multiple stories of the background behind that, but uh, it was kind of kind of ominous. And no one was hurt, uh, disabled the Bradley, and they had this other dumb thing. You know, you hear about sensitive site exploitation. You know, whether it's on target, you know, getting whatever information you can from a target site. But again, this is kind of early on in the EFP. Uh, they had been around; it wasn't a new technology, but just really the increase. And so, uh, there was this thing of whenever there was any kind of IED attack, they wanted us to go out and take pictures and measure the blast radius on the ground, and they could take it based off how the blast radius was. They could determine uh, if it was, uh, you know, orbital three hundred and sixty IED floating everywhere, or you know, the shape charge, uh, you know, projectile from an EFP, and again, back to like, yeah, guys, you just got blown up by something. Now I want you to get out and go take pictures of it. Uh, was another, you know, probably harder sell than driving around for eight hours waiting to get blown up. So kind of my guidance to my guys was, you know, guys, we're supposed to, this is our orders are to do this. The orders also say, you know, if the situation dictates and allows for it. And, I'm not going to be on every patrol because we're scattered. And so my guidance is the senior leader on the ground makes the call. And, you know, my expectation is that more often than not because of where we're at, that you're going to say, oh, the situation just didn't make sense. We felt at risk. We didn't take pictures. I'm like, but every now and then we have to, you know, we can't completely not do it. Someone's going to catch on. And so whatever this day, uh, the call is made to, uh, they, they had, I mean, the vehicle was disabled, so they had to get out anyways. And they said, you know, while we're, you know, if this route, someone snap a couple of pictures. And so uh, they were more focused on the recovery piece at first. And when they got out, there were six guys on the ground. And uh, this was a coordinated attack. You know, you, you always look for secondary devices. We found them more than we didn't find them. And Unfortunately, this day we didn't, so the secondary device, which was not an EFP, it was a conventional IED, I think Claymore, it was a ball bearing IED designed for troops on the ground to do exactly uh, what it did. So that detonated and hit the six men on the ground, Uh, four were killed instantly, Uh, Staff Sergeant Terry Prater, Sergeant Emerson Brand, Staff Sergeant Blake Harris, and uh, Specialist Jimmy Arnold that I mentioned earlier. And then two guys, Sergeant Ryan Green, and then our medic, Sergeant, Sergeant Nicholas Leitner, uh, suffered catastrophic injuries. Green was a amputee, and Leitner had significant, you know, this, these tiny little ball bearings. The, what they do to the body is, is uh, it's devastating. So, yeah, four, four guys, uh, two, two injured.
1: Here's the, the big thing <laughs> that I took from it was they you're woken up right you're you're taking your little nap um you're woken up and they say hey we were hit everyone's okay uh i just wanted to kind of update you on it so you kind of are relaxed go back and then i guess almost immediately they come back in well never mind not everyone's okay we took a secondary blast four were killed instantly um and you find out no
2: they don't tell me that They don't tell me any of you are killed. They just said people are hurt. Okay. That's all I know. We have injuries. Yeah.
1: But then uh, Charles Irwin, right?
2: Charlie Irwin. Yeah.
1: So he uses your name over the radio and says he's going to call you. He calls you and starts kind of apprising you of the situation. Um, Does he tell you any more while he's talking to you?
2: No. So he was the, uh, executive officer at alpha company. And again, it happened right in front of their fob. And again, we didn't have many guys out there. And as you can imagine, it was kind of a shit show. Uh, the guys I was talking to on the net on my end. Uh, and he kind of said like, you know, I heard, you know, we have multiple wounded and then like we have a KIA and again, understandably. So the guy I'm talking to is kind of a mess. And, uh, it's like, don't say any names over the net. Uh and then the Alpha Company guys got out there and kind of took over. And then they were actually closer to not Fab Rust and Maya to Fob Loyalty, which was the brigade headquarters. And so they took them there. And then like as they were pulling in at that point, you know, they kind of knew who was who. And so that's when Charlie came over the net and just, you know, it was no Legion five, this is Commando Six. It was uh, you know, hey. A... so Charlie and I were platoon leaders together that first deployment on Hypha Street. Uh, very close friends uh ironically still very close friends to this day, even more ironically, his wife is an o b g y n and they're in Fort Worth and delivered my last three children uh, so very that, very close people to me yeah
1: that that is uh that's amazing uh that it yeah so it's, I mean it shows you what a small world it is and not to get in the middle of the story, but to show you like what a small world this is. While all this is going on, though, I want to talk about uh, Kuhn um, and yeah. the heroic efforts that he did that night because I want to talk about uh, later on w- w- not only yeah. what happened to him but what he came to talk to you about. So you have two yeah. two injured. You have four dead, four KIA. Uh, Kuhn, can you kind of tell his side of it? Because And the reason I don't want to tell any part of this because I want it to come from you because I think it's a little more – uh, real when it comes out of you instead of me just pointing out talking points in the book. Yeah,
2: No, it's yeah. So community. And again, I wasn't there. So I'm basing this off of what you know, others. So again, the majority of the guys, the guy out of the Humvee was really all the dismounts. There was only, you know, a couple of gunners and drivers left. And so when that went off, uh, you know, and there's multiple, you know, depending on who you ask. And again, it's the whole, you know, cliche fog of war. Some people were saying, uh, you know, some bad guys opened up, so they were under small arms fire. As soon as this happened, uh, other people say there was nothing. I, I don't know. I wasn't there, but uh, you know what I was told is that they were under fire, and Coon jumped out of the gunner's seat and uh, the gunner's hatch, and in a Humvee, and ran out there and kind of quickly realized, you know there was nothing you could do for the floor, uh, but put tourniquets on Sergeant Green, Sergeant Lightner, and so the reason they lived, albeit temporarily you know, it was kind of for what he did uh, with no one else. You know, imagine that scene, you know, this thing goes off. There's not a whole lot of guys left. They're either in Bradley's or it's you and you run out by yourself and go and, and do that and kind of held down the fort and get in medical aid till the alpha company guys showed up.
1: When all this is happening, um, you're like, <coughs> I, like we talked about, you're being um, apprised of it and everything. You're you're you to me took, good points from it. You said you got two injured. Yes, that's a bad thing. Yes, four KIA. But you tried to focus on the positive of two being injured, two that you could still possibly get in touch with, find out what happened, talk to them, kind of work them through it. Uh, And then of course you have Kuhn that's also there, who has his struggles later on. Can we talk about the first time? Um, Well, first I want to talk about Um, you and the first sergeant in the temporary morgue, this was a huge, um, kind of point in the book, um, that two men who tried to bottle it up the whole time, couldn't do it anymore. It just exploded there. Um,
2: you know, actually it was, uh, at that point I still was it was the first time and again, you got man, first sorry, Orlando Garcia. I mean, that dude, you know, fast forward many years, you know, one of the best men in my wedding, you know, people talk about right brotherhood. I mean, like, it's just it's unbelievable what me and that man have and, uh, you know, just the rock man, you know, it's like anything sometimes, you know, you're the commander, you get the credit for this great unit, and you'll never once hear me like, the unit was built around that dude. And and, and I don't say that to be humble. Uh, I mean, sure, I played a part, maybe. But uh, what we had was because of that man. And anybody in Legion would tell you that. And they try to say it was me, I would tell you they're lying because they're trying to kiss my ass or something. And, you know, he was an emotional guy, but he was just a rock for the men. And when we went in there to, to see the bodies, uh, it was – and, again, it's just dichotomy of just thought and – numbness, uh, clarity. Like I remember it, like it happened, you know, like many of those experiences, like it happened this morning, uh, of, of him just, just losing it and, you know, just put his head on my chest and just started crying. And it's as painful and sad as that moment was, there was almost this feeling of like, you know, finally for once
1: you can be I'm the there streamer. for
2: him. Yeah. Yeah. It, he was always there, you know, and it's, uh, and, and that's selfish to think of it that way. And I don't mean it as like taking advantage of that moment. I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, but, absolutely. Uh, it's just a, yeah, it, uh, so yeah. So then, you know, that was when he, you know, he's got this horrible nosebleed while he was crying. And so like, he came off from me and like, I mean, I'm just like covered in blood, like all over my shirt. And, uh, so we leave there and he goes to get cleaned up and, you know, I don't give a shit. So I went to the chow hall and wasn't even, I mean, again, obviously I'm just numb and, uh so yeah so that was when the guy came and kind of realized i'm at this point word had spread around the base you know we're back at Rustamaya, what was going on and uh it didn't take long to figure out you know who i was and uh so yeah it was uh so the guy came up that other nco i don't know who it was different unit but was just amazingly awesome in how he handled that situation
1: uh by telling you he'll get you another shirt
2: yeah he was just like you know hey sir let me go well, I come get you back here? Let me go get you something else. And, uh, and I kind of looked down and then it all came to and I'm like, you know, I appreciate it. But let me I'll just get out of here.
1: So Kuhn, when all this happens, <laughs> he comes to you later on because he you find out not from him personally, but from some other men that he's maybe not doing as well as he is uh, portraying outwardly.
2: Yeah, so there's, there's that, yeah, we, you know, he's having a tough time with things. And uh, you forget the weekend before we deployed, we had the unfortunate alcohol related incident and lost a soldier. And Absolutely. the reason that kid lived long enough for his parents to drive down from Colorado and pull the plug was Coon gave him mouth to mouth and kept him alive until the parents got there. You know, so when I, <clears throat> you know, I heard he was struggling you know, with what had happened that day, you know, everybody was in the wrong way. And at this point, uh, you know, the Ford died three days later, Sergeant Green died. We had the memorial service for the five guys, you know, we get together, we laugh, cry. That was on March 20th, you know, but Hey, we still got Doc Leitner, you know, to rally around, uh, well, then the next day we get the call that he died after making it all the way back to the States, you know, so then you got Kuhn to kind of, to hang on to and, so yeah, it was a couple of weeks after that is when I called him into my room and just reminded him and so you know I know anything I say is you know just going to be words at this point, but I hope as time goes on you you realize that three families got an opportunity to spend last moments with their boy and uh, you know in our line of work that's not something that a lot of people get and while it doesn't change anything in what you feel right now, I just hope in time that you realize that what you've done for those three families is more than most people will ever accomplish in a lifetime. And that's something they'll always cherish and hold on to. And, and, uh, yeah, that was, that was what I said.
1: And then the unthinkable happens. I mean, that that's the only way I can describe it because you see this, you see what he's going through. You talk to him, tell him to hold his head high, all this. And then the unthinkable happens to him. And, and, it happens to him I think in probably the worst way it can um, because the the four guys that are KIA are out there it's on a on a mission um, not everyone was around this one was very up close and personal with you um, and, and so yeah I, I is the mind starting to go dark by now? I mean, you're numb. Are you Are you starting to go dark? Where you're just like, when the fuck does all this end? Are you starting to that think was, that yet?
2: No, that was yeah. No, no that was a. It, it's a very clear like when, you know, the other stuff was incredibly difficult. Uh, and I won't discount it in, in any way. You know, it was, it was a struggle. I guess kind of where I hit my internal breaking point, which, again, I compartmentalized, uh, right, was, was that they not just because of, you know, not and, and again, I don't say it, like, I'm not trying to like intentionally tell you to some heartbreaking story. But you know, when I, I'm like, you know, come up with the worst, like, someone if you can show me a more painful way to go through an experience like this, I want to see it because, you know, to lose that many at once to have a couple to hang on to, and then them die in subsequent days you know and then the hero to him die and to how he died and then uh well let's talk about that you know, for a minute per, i person.
1: i i don't want to bring it up but can you tell the story of what happened there
2: so uh was out on a mission again i wasn't on it was one of the smaller you know half a platoon patrols out there and uh he was in the gunner seat in the he's a big kid like six five six six and Leaned out over, was shooing some kids away, wanted candy, and shot by a sniper. And uh, so, I get the call that, uh, you know, hey, we're coming back to, we're out at, you know, the patrol base, Legion base. And uh, this a dude just calls on the radio who was just like the baddest son of a bitch in the company. I mean, just a tough, tough dude. And like getting on the radio and hearing shake in his voice, I knew something was, was bad. And he just said, uh, I need you to get a medevac, get a medevac on the way to the base right now. We're on the way. And I was just like, y- y- okay, done. But you got to tell me more. I got to know something. And, uh, just said his coon, uh, he's hurt. He's hurt real bad. Uh, it's a head wound. And so, so they pull up and, uh, you know, it's and it, because of what had happened, you know, and how well respected he was by the men, uh, hearing you know chris chris's voice when he called in just uh kind of made the decision of you know let's just don't have everybody come out let's block this area off and you know everybody else stay inside handful of the senior guys so me and one of the other pato- uh platoon sergeants and uh, a couple of the squad leaders you know from another platoon uh we went out and carried him in and you know it's, you know helmet was off of course had a bandage on it and uh one guy grabbed a leg, I grabbed another leg or another guy grabbed the other leg. And I put my arms up, uh, underneath his shoulders and head and we were carrying him in, uh, and we didn't put him on a stretch or anything. Just wanted to get out and get him in. The doc was ready just to patch him up. The bird was on the way. And, uh, so yeah, so the bandage came off and that's when, and it, it, I, I don't not talk about it out of, uh, like if it were you and I sitting around talking about it, you know, I'll, I'll share it, but just in the off chance that of someone in his family I just spare the details just for, but you know, it's not, it's not pretty. Yeah. It's not pretty. And just this, uh, sound he was making, uh, you know, so, you, you know, it's not going to end well. And, you know, so you get him in there, they patch him up best they can. And, you know, me and these other guys are covered in blood and other stuff again, because the bandage came off. And so, uh, the bird came, carried him out, uh, amazingly still alive, uh, you know, but you knew and this this sounds harsh, uh, but anybody would tell you, like, you don't want him to make it because if he does, you know, he's going to be, you know, a, a vegetable as cruel as that sounds. Uh, just. Again, it doesn't take much of an imagination to see what was not there anymore. So, yeah, so that was when I went and cleaned myself up, you know, and kind of, you know, it's the beginning of the book. And uh, I know what you're getting to is I was, again, just that numb feeling. And before I went out and addressed the men to give him an update. You know, me and the other NCOs, myself and the the NCOs, we all went to separate bathrooms to get cleaned up. And uh, so, yeah, that's when I looked up and I saw I had this cut on my face and didn't know what it was. And then kind of looked down and realized, you know, there's pieces of bone stuck in my hands. And I had uh, cut myself open. You know, it wasn't deep, a gash, nothing like stitches. I'm not trying to, but it was just more the thought and, and idea of, you know, like, I just remember stopping and looking and it was just this, you know, I just, what the fuck, you know, fucking cut myself open with, you know, some other dude's bone fragments from a skull, you know, it just, it, uh, it, it just sent me into a dark place just for, from that, uh, the rage that I started to feel, you know, I talked about the tattoo earlier of, you know, what I'm, you know, capable of and everyone's got it in. Them. I'm not saying that cause I'm, you just got to be in those situations to know. And, uh, you know, I kept it in. I had a job to do, but inside, man, it was just a. That's when I always like my. That's kind of when I quit giving a shit, and that that's always good. By that's when the, I talk about the five years of my life that I lost. It started on that day.
1: So you're kind of at a dichotomy there. You're don't give a shit, but. You're still a company commander, right? Or have you, have you released? I, yeah. No, yeah, not
2: yet. I was for, yeah. Yeah.
1: You, you haven't relinquished command yet, but you're yeah, like
2: almost two more months. Yeah.
1: yeah. So uh, like just thinking of that dichotomy there, you're the man in charge. That's your company and you yep. are, your give a shit meter is gone. So how do you look at these other guys every day and expect them to have a give a shit?
2: back to that uh be careful you know the quote i use in the book is the old you know be careful when staying and staring at the abyss too long at some point it starts to stare back in your example earlier be careful because you can turn into that kind of i th- i was while well, inside i was able to uh channel that and just like let it out uh when i was alone uh, and I cried, cried all the time when I was alone. That thing, And, and oftentimes it was like tears. Of, it sounds silly, like tears of anger. Like I would get so sad thinking about those things, but then I would get so angry, I would start crying. But then I knew I just had to find a way to, to channel that and control that emotion because I did have a job to do. And I did have, and I knew, you know, not everybody could compartmentalize things. And yet at this point, you have to start really, And dude, it wasn't just these events. So I mean, along this, like every Bradley assigned to me destroyed by EFPs, three of the five M1s. So it's not like just these random attacks happened and that was it, these sad things happened. Like, you know, they didn't just like, okay guys, we got you good, we're gonna give you a break now. I mean, it was day in, day out. Uh, So I was very cognizant of like keeping the ship righted. I knew we were about to change command I knew the guy that coming in to replace me was going to be awesome. Uh, Exactly what the unit needed at that time. Uh, Of course, no one wants to leave command, uh, especially, in fact, I was supposed to, but because of everything that happened, they pushed it back about a month and a half. Uh, But I knew that if I did anything right for that group of men over all the time and everything we'd been together was to at least do my part to keep the ship righted during those tough times.
1: Does it scare you at all? Do you look at it? And because this has never been an emotion of you to have this rage and this anger and this not give a shit. That's like the exact opposite of what we've talked about oh, yeah. this whole, what hour and a half. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Does yeah. it scare you? Do you go, Holy shit.
2: <coughs> it did. Uh, I, and I, and I, and I, I never acted on it. I'm, uh, and, and proud of that, uh, like maybe act on it a little bit, <laughs> maybe push things, uh, the envelope, uh, in certain ways, but, uh, but nothing, you know, to the point that felt like I was, uh, violating any kind of oath or, you know, cause at some point there's gotta be a release, you know, and I, the example I use is, you know, and again, back to just how stupid things got, like we had tanks assigned to us. Yet, if you ever wanted to fire a main gun round in Baghdad's city limits, you had to get the brigade commander's permission. You know, are you going to call timeout in a fight? Like, oh, hold on, you know, bad guys, hit pause, you know, sir, can I get your initials so I can fire this thing? No, so all this is going on, you know, we'd lost the guys. And uh, so I was out one day, and because I had a tank platoon assigned to me, I told them, I'm like, teach me in and, you know, put me in a tank and teach me what the hell I'm doing just so I can... So, of course, they did what they would do with any dumb officer. They put me in the loader seat. They're like, yeah, this is where anybody can sit in the loader seat. Uh, but I told them, I'm like, just in the off chance, something ever happens. Teach me how to load this thing. And so they did. Uh, the guys were great. And so we're out one day, and uh, EFP hit the tank in front of us. Luckily, everybody was okay, but it was a monster EFP. I mean, just like literally like sucked the air. We were probably 7,500 meters behind it. And, like, literally sucked all the air out of our tank that far behind it. Uh, uh, it disabled that other tank. Luckily, it didn't catch on fire. Uh, it didn't hit the—they always started to go to the fuel fuel cells and missed it. I mean, it just blew the track all to hell. And, you know, and so then they did. That was one of the days it was kind of a coordinated thing. So some guys started shooting at us from the other side when the dismounts came out. Because uh, we were tankers. We didn't have dismounts. We had to call the infantry guys out. Well, we didn't have Bradley, so they had to walk out there to come find us and came under attack. So we just sort of hit that deal of, you know, at some point, like all this shit's happened to us and never once have we returned fire. And so we knew the area well enough that we kind of knew, you know, all right, if we blow that thing up, no, one's going to get killed. No one lives there. You know, so I just looked at him and I just said, let's send a fucking message. And, uh, and just like from a morale standpoint, it was the craziest thing. And, uh, and like, you should've heard this tanker, he's awesome. Sergeant Wolf, man, the guy's freaking stud. He was like, sir, do you remember how to load it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess. So he's just like, grab that thing. So threw around in there and, uh, you know we blew this building up with a main gun round and uh, you know, no one shot at us after that. They were kind of like, holy shit, these guys shot back, you know? Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's always a risk, you know there could have been people in their locals that we didn't know about uh, for whatever reason you know, just kind of felt like something had to be done. Uh, and part of that was the anger in me talking. Part of that was, I think the leader in me talking that had to at least give the men something. It's not a tangible win, but it's, it's better than what we've been getting the last couple of months. And dude, I it was would, like a freaking, I would
1: argue that that is a tangible win. It's a, from physical, a morale standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I would argue that that, that is a tangible win. Um, June 3rd, you lose Sergeant Caleb Christopher. Yeah. So that completes the eight. Yeah. It's time. Let's talk about him for a minute, but then I want to go into leave and then kind of where we're at. Cause we're on the downslope now. So yeah. let's talk about Caleb's let's tell that story and then we'll pick up at leave and kind of what goes on from there.
2: So Caleb was, he was a part of first platoon. So, uh, I, you know, I mean, to me, it's, it's no question. As part of the Legion eight. We trained up together. He was a part of it just because he was in first platoon and was detached to a different unit, then came back to one eight and was technically a part of Delta company one eight when he was killed. You know, he was still one of our guys, but yeah, it was just, uh, this is another, And again, I won't, I won't share the details just because of family members and people. Uh, I I will say it's, we had another suicide as recently as three years ago, uh, and the suicide was a direct result of what happened that day. It's like literally one of the uh, just most horrific grotesque things. So i'll just leave it at that uh but he was killed instantly and so yeah so he was the eighth in fact i had left command at that point I, I, this was a week after i left command uh and the other guy uh the other commander uh, was just awesome he just pulled me aside he's like look you know i know he's assigned to me i've had him for a month these are your guys you know we'll, you know i i'm supposed to give a speech about him but i want you to write it and i'll read whatever you write you know for the commander's speech he, uh, and Caleb was just a stud, man. Uh, awesome guy.
1: And so do you feel yourself more and more or are we still sliding down this ravine?
2: At this point, you know, I'm out of command and, you know, go to the S3 shop and I work in there and, and they pretty much, you know, uh, initially they wanted to get me out of there and like get me to brigade, uh, to brigade staff position at a different fob just to completely get away from all everything uh i fought that and my bosses agreed that even though i'm not in command because of everything and because i had been with these guys the first deployment that you know at some point one of these guys is one like you know they may want a shoulder to lean on and somebody outside of these so it'd probably be good just to have me around not for the day-to-day like be removed from the unit but there if one of the guys needs something So they kept me there. And a part of that, it was like, you know, hey, come to work, but like, just take whatever time you need to kind of process all the stuff that, uh, you know, take this time to get your head right, but also be there for any of the men if they need anything. Uh, But yeah, after a month, you know, then went to my S3 job, which was like any support desk. It's the first time I'd had really a true, you know, staff job in the military and it sucked. It's one of the reasons I got out.
1: Well, yeah. So then, uh, I, I definitely think it couldn't have helped your mental state at all.
2: No, if anything, it gave me and the guys I was in the three shop with were great, uh, good at just laughing, just finding any reason not to talk about it. But uh, yeah, going back and living in the headquarters barracks in a room by myself, you know, it was probably too much, too much alone, free time by myself at night.
1: Well, as we come to find out that you're going to spend a lot of those times. So July, yeah. you go on leave, you get your tattoo. There's talks of divorce again. Um, you're kind of reaching the end of uh, you're getting close to the end of your rope on this one. You're really starting to pull back away. Um, what, are, what are you going through?
2: Like I said earlier, the, i didn't care you know now one very important part that we brought it up but we kind of left out before that second deployment chris and i had a great year plus together uh, in between the deployments we did absolutely and, uh, we had our, our son absolutely cole together who was born you know three months before that deployment uh but i i really didn't you know i always talked about being the guy that could flip the switch and find a positive thing in life and focus on that uh you know, and for me, it's like, all I cared about, like, I can't get home fast enough. Uh, I can't get out of the army fast enough. I don't give a shit what I do for a career. Uh, I just want to get back and be a father, be a father to Cole, and nothing else really matters. We get divorced, fine, we get divorced. Uh, I was kind of done putting the energy into that at that point. Not, not how that sounds when I say that, but it got back to the give a shit meter. Like it was just I I was done. Like, you know what, I've, you said it, I mean, I was the guy that, like, was always trying to be there for everybody else, you know, and all this. And yeah, I had a little bit of a pity party for myself. Like, you know, it's, it can't, it's been this, this slow, just, all right, this sucks. All right. A month later, wow, this sucks worse. A week later, wow, this sucks even worse than that. You know, and it's like, at what point, like, well, if I just don't care about anything, then things will quit sucking
1: but they didn't no,
2: no, not at all. They, they,
1: they sucked worse and worse.
2: And so, yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, you even reach a point where you even reach a point where as you're out, you, you know, you, you are offered a position, um, of, of a little bit higher command. You turn that down to, to resign your commission to get out. Um, you get out, um, but everything's not Gravy when you get out uh, there, you take a job, you're in Colorado, you train, the The distance grows. Uh, you say in the book that it became an easy thing because you guys have been separated so much. But I mean, really, you guys are separated again. You're away from your son. The one thing that you wanted to do to get out, uh, there's a divorce very much looming on the horizon. You're going down and you find yourself, I would guess pulling back away from everyone, really not talking to anyone. And now with Chrissy gone, there's really no one to talk to. Yeah. And so when you talk about being in the headquarters barracks and spending a lot of time alone, now you're really spending a lot of time alone. And I thought it was interesting that you talk about that you would set up your schedule to make you feel like you had a life. I thought that was super interesting in there that you would – you would set up to go out and you could go to a bar, order a drink, order your food, joke with the bartender, get your food and be gone in 15 minutes. And that in your mind set up a regular normal existence.
2: Well, then it was enough. like, you know, you start going down this and always kind of equate it to like you have, you know, there's the norm and there's the exception. And for me, you know, the bad days were the exception. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight, you don't realize it, it. it may happen overnight, you don't realize it overnight, is that the exception became the norm. And but there is still a, a part of me that realized that this path that I was going down and that I needed some, you know, I need to find some bit of interaction, some bit of, but I don't want to go and like sit down and make the effort to like create some lifelong friend and go out, and you know, go canoeing on the weekend all day it was, well, hey, if I go to the same couple of places and eat all the time, strike up a 10, 15 minute conversation with people, yeah, I can walk in and be like, yep, uh, give me my whatever IPA and your flatbread pizza and uh, and go ahead and give me my check too. And like literally, I would order my drink, sometimes order two drinks, my pizza, and I'd get my tab at the same time. And then I would BS with the bartender for a little bit and get my food, eat, and I'd be out of there. And I'd be up to me. I'm like, hey, I just went out. I interacted. I'm good. Look at me. I'm Yeah, obviously I laugh at that now, but it made sense at the time.
1: Right. But I would ask the question somewhere in your mind, even at that time, somewhere in your mind, you had to be telling yourself this is not normal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I knew it wasn't normal. Uh,
1: So do you think you were fooling yourself?
2: No, I thought that I was like, and again, it's you get on this thing and like, you know, normal becomes, you know, it's like define normal, <laughs> right? Yeah. It becomes relative. And so for me, it, it, like I was making it, I knew that I wasn't the guy that I'd always been. And I knew I needed to do something to get me back to be in me. I had no idea what the hell that was, but I could fill these little small voids and sometimes, and it sounds silly that little 10, 15 minute inter- interaction would make me. All right, cool. You know, I'm, I'm back, I'm getting back out. I'm talking to people but I didn't do anything. I just stack on top of that. It was just wash, rinse, repeat, do the same exercise a couple of times a week and never make any meaningful change.
1: I mean, you go so far as you say that you try a lot of different things. You try religion. Uh, you try a counselor, the first counselor that you're immediately stand off with. The religion thing was pretty interesting to me also Because you used to read the newspaper, drink your coffee while they sang and everything. Then you went in thinking, I'll hear a message and that will lead me towards the right thing. And you never heard it until a little ways in. And then they start talking about inner walls. And you say, it spoke to me, but then you never went back. It's like, I want to get better, but I really don't want to get better.
2: I want to lose weight, but I don't want to work out you know, it's, uh, you know, and it was a guy and, and I really struggled with the religious aspect of it, because I was a guy that was very religious growing up. I mean, heck, I went to a private Baptist college, you know, it had always been a big part of my life. I'd been on a mission trip for, uh, you know, so due to, I mean, I had Bible verses tattooed on me. And, well, can can I mention you know, something
1: real quick while we're talking about this? Because yeah. I, I, I think it's very relevant for what we're talking about. When you had the private come and talk to you, and he said that yeah. he prayed and Jesus Christ was his rock, and you told him, Well, I watched these two guys pray and look what it got them. Yeah. And so it it's that's what why the, the that's why the religion yeah. thing was so interesting to me that you thought, well, let me go to this, and then when you start to make progress you're like nah not ready
2: yeah because i felt like uh the hypocrite a lot of ways you could say you know again for something that's been such a part of my life and then when i started questioning it uh and it was the culmination of all these things and i said it to that kid after you know the seven guys had died the first seven and you know, it's one of my life's regrets, you know, that I just took this thing that this kid hung on to and I gave him a reason to doubt it. I didn't do it. That, that was the mind. I didn't do it to be a dick to him. I did it because that was the mindset I was in. And because and I think I said it because all those things and the manner in which they went down back to, you know, and I didn't want to say it earlier because I knew we were eventually going to get to this. But all right. Things happen for a reason. All our past. You know, our pre know predetermined if you if you you can find a way to predetermine like you you can get to the end and say all right look at legion eight and everything we've done it's great it wouldn't happen but uh you know i know a lot of people that would give up that to not have the events leading up to it because of it so that's where i struggle with the things happen for a reason and I say like faith is a very easy thing to have but it's a very hard thing to get back and uh like blind faith is a is a beautiful thing. And when I started questioning it, uh it had only made me say that horrible thing to that poor young kid. That's what led me when I would go in, like I would hear something that it would make me feel good, but I would immediately go to, but I'm questioning it in so many other ways. Like I hear this, this message resonates with me. But then I have, you know, that's the angel on this shoulder. Then I got, you know, my asshole Jeff over on this shoulder, like, Well, don't forget how you felt, you know if that message did all this stuff and resonates with you, then how the hell could they let all these other things happen in such a painful way to these men? Uh, And it's not just my, I mean, you read the stories, you know, the kid drowning in the freaking sewage, the guy going to meet his baby and dying on the way in. Like, yeah, I just, I wanted to get that faith back, but I wasn't ready then.
1: So you, you meet this counselor, you guys kind of hit it off right away. What was it about this guy that was different than religion, the first counselor? Uh, and, and really ultimately what led you to this was your mom saying that she was worried about you, that she didn't think you were coming back from it.
2: Yeah. You know, to hear your mom, you've heard me obviously talk about her and to tell me that I looked dead inside. Uh, and it just broke her heart that she was nothing that, you know, she could do about it. Something I was going to have to figure out on her own. So that led me to at least give it another try. Uh, you know, it didn't like, again, not some overnight, overnight change. And yeah, so this guy was recommended to me. Uh, and I think a couple of things that drew me One, I laughed. So someone gave me his name and you know, he's the best guy out here in Tyler. I called him and he started the conversation with, Hey, I'll talk to you, but I'm not seeing any new patients right now but I want to hear your story so I know who to recommend you to if you're comfortable. If I recommend you to somebody, uh, he's like, so give me the, give me the 10 minute clip notes version. And at like seven minutes in, he just stopped and said, uh, are you available at this time tomorrow? And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and I was like, you know, yeah, you need to finish up. He's like, no, I've changed my mind. I'm going to take you. on. I'm going to find a way. And so there's part of this is like, and I always laugh, I'm like, you know, God I was so freaking jacked up to this guy. I was like, hey, I wanna this is gonna be a challenge, <laughs> you know. Uh but there was a part of like, you know, that, that meant something that uh he did it. And then I like the way of you know, he just kinda early on said, Let's let's just get the tough stuff out of the way. Like let's we kinda touched on it some of the day. Uh you know, in the whole mirror incident deal, you know, when I had said that to the first counselor way before uh he like just had a horrible answer and you know he was like, you know, wow, that sucks, dude. I'm like, yeah, no shit, I know that, you know. Tell me something I don't know. You know, but he just looked at it and just uh like didn't bet away. The whole thing of like, you know, wow, you know, this is something uh you know, he's like Jeff Hollywood couldn't make something like that up. And uh it's something that uh is forever gonna be a part of who you are and you know, you have to learn to accept it. And just that Those words, the idea of acceptance and choice, and me having the ability uh, where I'd spent five years, uh, the more I fought it, the more of a stranglehold those things. And I think what it's just me, anybody who's been through any kind of significant trauma uh, in life, you always want to, why did this happen to me? You know, why couldn't. And the more you fight it, the more it grabs you and the deeper it gets its claws into you. And then, you know, owning it. And accepting that it's forever going to be a part of who I am and knowing that every day uh, the choice of how I'm going to respond to that lies with me and not the actions of others is ultimately what really led to me making meaningful change.
1: Well, I thought it was even interesting in you saying all that about him and what you liked about him. He even framed the mirror question to you different than anyone had. He asked, yeah. are you looking into the mirror or are you standing away looking at yourself looking in the
2: mirror? Yeah. Yeah. And that's for the whole thing of, and when I told him it was the latter and I said, you know, man, I've never thought of it that way before, but it's more like I'm kind of afar looking at myself. And, uh, he said, well, that tells me that you haven't accepted it. And Jeff, we can't deal with things. Aren't we can't deal with things unless they're real and things aren't real until we accept them. And we have to literally and figuratively get you back to where you can look into a mirror again. Cause again, for like five years, I did everything in my power to not look into a mirror. I mean, shaved my head, brushed my teeth in the shower, uh, avoided it at all costs because it just brought back that image. Uh, And again, back to that control, and then I would just fight it more, you know. Uh, But starting that day is when I started to – it's there. It's part of who I am. It still happens now. Just now it doesn't shit on my day like it used to. Did you feel physically different? I felt like –
1: well, let me time, like, let me ask this question this way, because let me describe a little better, and I think it'll help you answer the question. When I mean do you physically feel better, as I'm reading your story and you're talking about the darkness and the music that you listen to and, and just all these things, I just imagine you being exhausted all the time, just tired, and do you feel different do you feel like you're ready to go out into the world because when i read it it just seems like you're ready to go out the door as long as you need to and then come back in
2: man it's so why you say that like i think back to the memories uh i think like i think about colorado colorado is a beautiful place sunny 300 days a year but i think of it like cold and dark and snowy you know the few times that it did and when i got to tyler you know that first you know, year and a half I was there, it did happen to be one of the wettest falls they'd ever had. But it's like my all my early time was in Tyler it was like rainy and dark and overcast and cold. And then like when all this, you know, and it sounds cheesy, but like I think back to that five year stretch and everything felt dark. And then I think back to once I started that process with him. And again, it wasn't an overnight fix. But like ever since then, like all the memories of my life are like more associated with Sunshine and bright, happy and being active and doing stuff to your question, you know, physically did I feel better. Yeah, it was like, you know, just like this mental that transitioned and, you know, metamorphosis into physical of like hope and hope is a beautiful thing. And for the first time in five years, I felt hope.
1: Another interesting thing that you point out in the book that I thought was you never turn to drugs. You never really turned to alcohol. You drank and stuff, but you never turned to the bottle. You never turned to drugs. And as far as I know, you never contemplated suicide. No. And and this is where the story jumps off the track for me. Because you have every single box checked for all of that stuff to be happening. And instead, you just hold yourself away. And the destruction that those things would bring still happened to you. Just not with those pushing it along. It was almost, yeah. you were your own worst enemy.
2: Yeah. I didn't need, it was, uh, say I didn't turn to that because, uh, I had coal. If I didn't have coal. Who knows where things would have gone. Uh, but just because I didn't do those things didn't mean that I didn't take, uh, an emotional and physical toll on my body. And, you know, I was like, I wasn't a bad father back then, but I wasn't a father that I'm capable of being or should have been, uh, you know, just because I wasn't the man. And during those years that I'm capable of being and setting the example to him. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a different kind of, uh, toll that I was taking on myself. Uh, but a toll nonetheless.
1: Let's move to the workout of the day and this group because this is the, the last thing that I looked at and I was like, wow. The people that you chose to tell your story to throughout the entire book, and I'm talking about the guy you called from Iraq and you said, I don't want to hear anything from you. I just want to tell you this and you tell him the story and then you tell your workout buddies a story and just the people that you picked throughout the book to tell your story to made absolutely no sense to me. It does. When you look at it, it does. When you look at it overall, as you're reading it though, until you get to the end of the book, you're like, I don't understand. He's got his mom. He's got Chrissy. He's got this, he's got that, but he's picking these random people to tell. Is it because you could spend that 15 minutes
2: with them? It's because it was random. There was nothing of any depth there. Uh, you know, I mean, i not got to know these people fairly well, but we weren't like best friends or anything. Uh, it was just a, that was one of the things the counselor encouraged me is like, just try it out. Just go try and share this with somebody outside of your comfort zone. And this just seemed like an easy, I mean, hell, they're really the only people I knew and Tyler are the only people I had to share it with, you know, but in hindsight uh, at the time, probably the the least likely group you would expect. Uh, but in hindsight it was the perfect group because Back to maybe there are times where things are preordained, of you know, if it wouldn't have shared up with that group, then the idea for the workout wouldn't have happened. And uh, well, it
1: just seems to me through the entire book that's what figured you out was I, it, all these things are happening for a reason. You tell them you create this workout to pay homage to these guys, you have people that'll. Try out the workout to see if it'll work. I mean, you have all these things. And then when you finally launch this workout and you see the massive amount of people that come in and you see people, you talk about one guy in particular um, that comes in, but you see that it's not just soldiers that you're changing your lo- their lives. It's other people that you're, that you're changing their lives at an almost core level of them to understand what's going on. And I'm talking about the guy who was losing his father to cancer, then heard your story and decided, hey, mine's not so bad. I can do this. And you changed his thinking almost at a core level. You, You have to understand that this, as small as it may seem to you, that just this workout to pay homage to these people has changed so many people's lives.
2: Yeah, it is and again, you know, it's, you hear stories like that at first, you think, wow, that's cool. And then, you know, it happens again and again and again. And, uh, you know, after a while you come back and I'm like, you know, at some point, I don't know how many people have stopped like, you know, Hey, what do you do for a living? And I'll tell them and they'll be like, well, you should quit. And this is what you should do for a living. Uh, and, and it's not that it's, it's me. It's the story of it, it's the message behind it. It's not Jeff's story. It's the message of you know, what we all went through, you know, and yeah, a lot of it's told through my eyes and my own personal experiences, but I think that I'm representative of the, the broader group. Uh, but yeah, you know, and it kind of, and I think you probably remember the part of the book where Linda, Sergeant Green's mom was at the one gold star event and was telling another gold star mom about a Legion eight event coming up and just started crying. And just said, uh, it's like, you know, sweetie, what's wrong? And she's like, you know, my boy doesn't have a Legion eight. And, you know, that comment there is a lot of what ultimately led to, uh, me deciding to write the book, uh, because, you know, I kind of mentioned to you before the, you know, I, I'm a big proponent and it's not, you know, we kidded around about the soft guys earlier. It's, it's not a knock on them. Those guys are awesome. And yeah, you hear more about them because their books are sexier and the stories are cooler. And young kids, when they, going and looking for podcasts. They don't go and Google, you know, army infantry captain, you know, they go and Google Delta force or still team six. And, and I get that and they're awesome, but there's just so many more stories of like what me and my men went through just because there's more of us. Uh, and the stories are different. They're not better or worse. They're just different. And, uh, you know, if, if our story, you know, can be, can fill that void for someone that doesn't have a Legion eight, but if our message of, you know, never letting your circumstance past or present dictate what you're capable of moving forward in life. Uh, the example we can set because we are just regular conventional army dudes, you know, we're not these mythical. And again, I got plenty of soft friends they would tell you like, man, I'm the most mediocre average guy in the world. Just, I have a, you know, inability to quit. (laughs) And that's why I was able to do what I do. Uh, but right or wrong, you know, sometimes the perception of those guys is people don't feel like they can relate to them because they seem almost otherworldly. But you see, an average Joe like me and you know the men that I serve with, they can relate to that. And just a big believer that, uh, and I say it all the time. I mean, I think it's the greatest gift that we have as humans is the ability to inspire someone else to say, you know what, if he can do it, if she can do it, so can I. And so that is just what the message of what Legion Aid and about what me sharing. You know, my personal story through the book is trying to set that example and just show other people. So can you.
1: Well, let's talk about where people can find you, uh, where they can help out the Legion 8 cause and uh, really kind of use that philosophy that you put at the very end of the book that pretty much everyone's a Legion 8. No matter what you're going through, you're a Legion 8. So first off, where can people find you?
2: Uh best play, you know, I got my Facebook stuff I kind of do for family and the kiddos. I'll do some my kid stuff on Instagram. But Instagram is where I try to do most everything. Uh, you know, so it's uh Jeff R. Morris, pretty simple. I got a boring name. Uh then Legion 8 Foundation uh has its own Instagram page as well. Uh it's Legion 8, it's the number eight, kind of as you got it there on your screen now, dot org. Uh, I will say the website, so there's a lot going on. I was kind of going one direction with one thing, uh with things. Then COVID hit and uh, sort of pulled back Legion 8 a little bit, just like when I on with the kids, demanding job. And always said, I'm not going to half-ass something that involves the legacy of my men. Uh, so I kind of pulled some things down, uh, took the Legion 8 store down, uh, just because the vendor I was going with, unfortunate situation there, uh, family. So anyhow, I say all that, like we're getting ready to ramp things back up with Legion 8 uh, to start doing some more events. You know, we can travel around to them you know, it's kind of centered around the CrossFit WOD. Uh, I actually really don't even do CrossFit much anymore, but, you know, I always will, but we're trying to really scale and grow Legion 8 behind it being just a, a CrossFit deal. And so I'm looking to partner with some different organizations, uh, you know, to, to scale it and grow it because, you know, it is a veterans organization and at the root of it, uh, you know, it's about these men, but to your point earlier, uh, I've probably seen as much, if not more of an impact on non-veterans through the message of Legion 8 and so that's where I'm trying to find the best partnerships and directions to go to really, uh, you know, it comes back to that promise we made to the families of never let their boy's name be forgotten. And, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that we're doing it in a respectful way that also is one that can help make a difference in the life of others.
1: Well, I will tell you, Jeff, I've told you before that that this book is, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, everyone can read it. It's not just like you said, a soldier story. I think that you can learn so much from it. Hearing the people that just come up to you at the end of the book, I mean the last, I don't know, 15 pages of the book, just to hear their stories and how it's affected them. You you guys need to pick this up. You can pick it up on Kindle. You can pick it up on Audible. You can buy it on Amazon Prime. Uh, Please get a hold of this book and read it and listen to Jeff's story because it is an absolute, just amazing story of growth and of someone who thought they had lost everything and brought it all back. And, and Jeff, it it is an honor to meet you, to have you on the show, to tell you this story. Um, I, I don't know what else to say to you. I hope you all the future successes in the world. And, uh, thank you for bringing this book to us.
2: No, I mean, DJ, thank you, man. And it's, uh, you know, first and foremost, I appreciate the kind words about the book, uh, you know, but it's, it's all about awareness and getting the story out there. Uh, and I tell people that like, you know, you've had other guests that have written books on there for guys like me. And we get out talk offline about this story of trying to get a, a no-name entry captain published out there. Uh, I'll just say this, we made it, you know, I got an incredible agent, uh, and made it to like all the big publishers Uh, Like the big time publishers and made it to the final review board like to four of the five and every one of them said love the book. These are their words not mine. One of the best we've read in the space Uh, but no one's ever heard of this guy. We don't think it'll sell (laughs) which is fair. eh? I'm a big boy. I can you know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's just awareness and I wouldn't have the opportunity to make awareness if it wasn't for, for shows like yours. So I appreciate what you're doing, not just for my story, for all the other great stories that you're telling. And I, I told you earlier when we were texting just to don't ever stop doing it, man. And keep up the great work.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. So guys, I think that's going to be it for the show. Once again, it's Legion eight. You can find it at legion 8.org. You can find it on Instagram. They're starting to kick back up. Uh, Make sure that you go check out the book Legion rising. That's going to be it for the show. Make sure you check out our sponsor, BlackPointTactical.com. They have awesome holsters. They have awesome gear for you guys to use. If you want more of me, you can find me on Twitter at DoubleSpeakDJ. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Remember, guys, you come here every week because the best stories are true, and we give them to you. That's Jeff. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.